Hey everyone, this is John. And this is Warriors. And this is Ryan. And this is the Nintendo Show, the best damn Nintendo podcast on the internet. This is going to be part two of the Retro Show. We've already covered historical events and all those video games that came out. There were a ton of them. So now we're going to pivot and we're going to talk about the other pop culture goings on, like music and movies. Ryan, take us away. All right, all right. Here, here we go. I think this was one of the busiest months in music we've had in a while. Not that, not that there was like one truly amazing record, but there was just, just a lot, just a lot happening. Um, John, you found time to listen to one record. Wes, I'm gonna pencil you in for zero. <laughs> <laughs> you probably? would be correct. Uh, <laughs> I don't listen to music. I, I, I have my one soundtrack that I listen to while I'm at at the gym. And that's mm-hmm. the only music I listen to. What's on it? Just out of curiosity. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Jonathan Young, who does a lot of covers of other songs, but he does it kind of like like a heavy rock slash metal kind of renditions. No, oh, so cool. it, it's really funny to listen to this guy just yell the shiny song from Moana. <laughs> it sounds really good. <laughs> so nice. if you haven't listened to him, try it. Listen to that guy. He, he's really good. Um, but a lot. Otherwise, just a lot of like various rock stuff because it's the gym you can't listen to like i don't know slow paced chill music <laughs> that's like i gotta listen to modest mouse or cake or anything like that you're just i'll have yeah. you know that i occasionally listen to smashing pumpkins while at the gym <laughs> well you know smashing pumpkins okay that's okay yeah they can be fairly heavy someone actually pointed out that uh if you just sort of play their music at like 1.5 speed, they're basically like, they're basically making glam rock. That's funny. Kind kind of works. It kind of if you listen to it. I know it sounds weird, but if you play it a little faster, it's essentially what they're doing. Right, well, you know, like, and the further into the millennium that you get with that particular band, I think the more that holds up. Like, there's really like gothic glam rock. Yeah. Well, then, yeah. Let's let's get to it. Let's get to it. Um, our our album of the month, I believe this is either the album of the month or might have been the second listed, but it's a band called The Broken Social Scene. They had an album called uh, You Forgot It in People. It's a weirdly named record. You guys heard of this one? No. Um, okay. They are, we, we've talked about the Canadian indie rock scene quite a bit. It was for whatever reason, people really cared about it then. Um, and... We had talked a lot about uh, bands like Godspeed You Black Emperor and Do Make Say Think, which are, uh, pro- you know, they are post-rock bands that make a lot of varied, like, lo-fi and muddied recordings. I think what Broken Social Scene here is trying to do as a collective, there are like 18 credited musicians, but as a collective, they're trying to make that same post-rock sound, but make it a little bit more accessible. And it works really, really well for them. Um, there's a lot of grandeur to their music. It's very beautiful. It's very pristine. Um, this uh, yeah, r- rightly deserves to be considered one of the bigger albums of, of the month. And if you like that sound, it's sur- I'd, I'd imagine maybe something more akin to Radiohead. Like if Radiohead were trying to get into like this post rock sound, you would you would end up somewhere along the lines of uh, Broken Social Scene. Uh, next we've got uh, Christina Aguilera releasing Stripped. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys well, were the, uh, are the big Christina Aguilera one. fans. Do you like her? Quite a few. Uh, Can't Hold Us Down, Fighter, Beautiful, Dirty, uh, Voice Within. Um, no, this record really would sell 12. I, if we could get oh. Dez on this podcast, she'd probably have some things to say. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it sold about 12, 12 million copies. This was this was a big one. Oof. This was a really big one. She's you know uh, one of the biggest musicians of this era. You know, she always. Sadly, she is always brought up in league with with Britney Spears. It's always sort of has to be this like, you know, which which one? Uh, just because they were generally making the same sound of music at the same time. Um, uh, Christina Aguilera was always the more talented one for sure. Um, like, her voice is incredible on this record. You she leave sounds Britney amazing. alone. Yeah, I think Britney. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it would be like comparing. Um, like comparing Madonna to Mariah Carey, I guess you could say would probably be a apt comparison. Where it's like, Madonna was never really a great singer, but she had all of the like charisma, and she know how to how to push society's buttons and to maintain relevance and be this sort of pop culture icon. Whereas Mariah Carey is just like one of the best singers of her generation. Her voice is incredible, and she aligned herself with great producers and had really good albums. So. I, th- I think that that's kind of what you get with a Christina Aguilera. She is technically the superior musician. Um, her voice, again, is so good. So, so good. Uh, has incredible power and range when she sings. And yeah, you know, I, th- I think there's a good mix of stuff here. She's got three different producers she's working with. Um, Scott Storch, Alicia Keys actually produces some of her tracks, and Linda Perry. So all of them come from different sort of worlds. So one is more of a hip-hop producer, one's making R&B, and one is doing that sort of modern female focused pop sound uh so yeah again this this is a huge record absolutely a really really big record i'd recommend people go back and listen to it if you like pop music and if you want to hear the you know what it's like when you spend a million dollars to record an album uh what it sounds like because this is a very good one again uh, can't hold us down was a huge hit for her fighter was also a big song and then you know checks like like beautiful these are these are all like I guarantee you she would play not only these five songs, she'd probably play half the fucking record um, if you were to see her live. This is one of her biggest records for sure. Um, Foo Fighters, released some called One by One. Have you, you guys are probably familiar with Foo Fighters. Yeah. I know Foo Fighters, but the album's not ringing a bell. It has tracks like, um, what is it, All My Life and Times Like These. No. When I spun, yeah, when I spun the album, I remembered the songs, um, but... I'm I'm in a level with you guys. I'm not even that big of a fan of Foo Fighters. Mm. Uh, I I like their singles Oof. okay, but I feel like their songs are always two minutes longer than they need to be, and they're just there's just always boring songs. Like they can make they can make they can craft a good single for sure, but if they have twelve tracks on an album, it's like eight of them just feel like filler. That I can um, I can I can respect that. Yeah. Again, uh, probably a band incredible to see in a live performance when you're basically getting the greatest hits from them and they're, you know, rocking the fuck out. But in the studio, I don't know. I'm just I'm just not that big on this record. Um, but it, it sold 2 million copies. It did well for them, but it also wasn't as big as, was it, the Color and was it color and Sound or Lights and Color? I forget what the fuck it was called. And the self-titled, uh, you know, this is... I didn't write down what album this is in there. So, yeah, it's their third album. After those other two, which are great great records um this one's i don't know i figured i would like it more when i was writing down my list of albums to listen to are we uh are we at the point in like the history of foo fighters that they've been uh, in in 2002 were they officially around longer than nirvana have we have we crossed that precipice Dude, they're still around uh, today. no i mean like in, if, if we're like yeah. we're in the millennium we're in 2002 if like the, from the time the Foo Fighters formed to 2002, was that longer than the duration of Nirvana? 
I honestly don't know about that. I would think pretty sure close. Either. I mean, be just because, like, I want to say they, they released their... Fir- like, Nirvana probably released their first record. I would just pencil it in for, like, 88? Is that when Bleach mm. came out? Bleach was their debut. Maybe. Um, and then he died, and I, I don't even know the exact year. I want to say 94, 95, maybe? I, got that. I might have that wrong, too. I want to say it's a run of maybe, like, six years. And, you know, if that's when that happened, and he formed Foo Fighters shortly thereafter, yeah, I mean, that's probably about... Mm. Probably about right. I would imagine it's close. I imagine it's very, very close. Um, and yeah, like Nirvana is an all-time great band. If you were going to take some time out of your life to listen to music involving Dave Grohl, it shouldn't be the Foo Fighters. You should be going back and listening to those Nirvana albums. They are um, Which are deservedly not, influential. Yeah, not, not to like like it in an insulting way like he, the, what, what he's done and what the rest of the band members and Foo Fighters have done has just been has been good like it's stood the test of time they're still around they're yeah. still making music they're still playing shows it's been like, a, a really good band that he's been a part of it must like uh, and he's handling it very well the sort of baggage that goes with being part of a band like Nirvana super early in your career you know, like Absolutely. he still yeah. like fields questions about uh, Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, like handles it really well. Um, yeah, 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 totally. It, it, and, it must and, be it yeah. must be strange that that's still something that's such a huge part of your life is having to to talk about a thing that happened like for six years in your early twenties. Yeah, and, and I think at this point, you know, the Foo Fighters still ended up being one of the biggest is Mm -hmm. to this day one of the biggest bands in rock music so it's not like he ever felt short of fell short of a goal or anything like that and you know he is the you know the driving central driving creative force behind the Foo Fighters so it totally makes sense I mean he's not it's it's you know it's like uh it's like he's not Ringo or anything he's Mm -hmm. not like Ringo and the Beatles where the band breaks up and the three other guys go off and have this prolific careers well, Ringo is essentially just sort of doing, you know, like compilation records and covered records and working with other people on albums. He's still, you know, making music, but nobody, nobody really, people don't really dig into Ringo's <laughs> solo work. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know where I'm going with this. Just to say, um, yeah, yeah, I, I think there's very few people could have come out of that. And, and he was the drummer in um nirvana too so and you know seeing him transition from that role of of the drummer to being sort of the face of the band that creative force behind it really really cool and i mean and here we sit in 2023 where taylor hawkins has passed and that was his that was one of his best friends and his drummer in foo fighters so um tough tough for him but yeah um and again like i I don't want to trash this record it's fine fine enough record uh, but uh, you know, I've I've, le- I've levied my criticisms already against Foo Fighters. That, that, that's that's our tight ten <laughs> minutes on Foo Fighters. <laughs> I know, right? We just, yeah, yeah. That, was, that was a lot on Foo Fighters. <laughs> yeah, um, we have the debut record from a British outfit, the Libertines. Have you guys ever heard of Libertines? No, no. Uh, this album there is called Up the Bracket. Uh, this is a fucking great record. This is such a good record. They are known... So they're a British band. They essentially make what you would... Like, power pop music. Uh, It sounds a lot like 70s punk. Um, They kind of... It sounds like it's... Like, if you listen to this band, they play with such kind of ferocity and intensity that it sounds like it's just all about to fall apart at any moment. But they manage to keep it together. Um, They're they're very known for, like, the hard life and... um, there's sort of a tabloidness, I feel like, in British rock bands where they kind of love to hear about the infighting and the, 
you know, like the fights on stage and stuff like that. And this band is certainly uh, a, a culprit there. Uh, there's a lot of just drama around them. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to this record, they actually made a, a fantastic record, and I would totally recommend people listen to it. Uh, songs like Boys in the Band are really good. The, cell, the, the title track, Up the Bracket, really, really strong. Uh, 12 tracks in, like, 30 minutes. Like, these guys really, really go on this record. Um, it's loaded with great melodies. Um, I can see why this band was, like, super huge, uh, especially in the UK. This is very much a UK sound for, a, like, a garage rock band. Um, but yeah, like there's just a lot of great influences that find their way into what this band does. Absolutely love them. Uh, moving on, uh, Rilo Kylie. You guys know who Rilo Kylie is? By any chance? No, no. They have an album called "The uh, Execution of All Things." It's their, I think it's their debut record. Um, but this is a weird. It's a super group, but not of musicians. It's a super group of '90s like actors, like '90s kid actors. Oh, um, ugh. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, uh Jenny Lewis is the lead singer. Jenny Lewis, you may remember from that movie with the uh, fucking what's his face, Fred Savage, where he's like got the power glove or whatever. Oh, okay. No, the, the, girl the wizard. That? The wizard. Yeah, yeah, the wizard. Thank you. She's in that, and like one of the guys. I don't know. Do you guys remember the show Salute Your Shorts? No. Yes. There was a character yeah. called Sputnik on that. Sputnik's in this band. I, I can't. I can't place the characters, but I, I remember <laughs> the show. I, I should. I don't know. I don't have the list of the actual musicians in front of me. I, I just know that all of these guys were, um, and and gal, were like child actors that knew each other. But you know, be, being that they're artists, they also played music. That's um, funny. And yeah, yeah. Like That's this weird. album, it's 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 a funny thing. Um, and I'm sure they get questions about it every once in a while. I'm sure people are like, "Hey, remember when you were like 10 <laughs> and you did that fucking movie or whatever." Uh, they made a good album though. This is a really, really good record. Um, it is kind of like what Connor Oberst has been trying to do for so long, but he's just like his his albums honestly struggle for me. Like this band manages to pull off very elegantly. It's a it's sort of a emo indie rock album with a little bit of like country tinge to it. Um, Jenny Lewis's voice is great. She has this very just uh very beautiful voice. Um, very like. Uh, bright and feminine and just really nice just great to listen to and I don't know she kind of writes these very um, snarky lyrics she's she's kind of they're very witty it's very funny to, to listen to her lyrics as she's writing songs uh, Paints Peeling is a good track uh, the title track of the album again execution of all things and there's a song towards the end of the album called With Arms Outstretched I love all in all, really, really um, good, good listen, easy listening record here. This one's really, really nice. Um, Beth Gibbons and Rustin Mann release an album together called Out of Season. Real quick hit on this one, because I, I mean, I don't want to go too far into it, but um, Beth Gibbons is actually the singer of a trip-hop group called Portishead, uh, a big band in the UK, um, and an iconic for the trip-hop sound, which was really big in the 90s. Um, and in this one, she's sort of making a jazz record. Uh, there is no electronic musician stuff. I mean, there, there might be, actually, I should take that back. There might be some of that on there, but it's all ostensibly just like kind of a sultry jazz album that she made. Um, and it actually had a big single on it called Tom the Model, which I really liked quite a bit. I thought it was a really, really nice record to listen to. Um, moving on, Hot Hot Heat. You guys know who Hot Hot Heat is by any chance? Nope. Nope. 
they are big in like and again they, this is a band that will be like hot for a minute they'll have two albums in the early 2000s and sort of like the they'll be heat yes yeah they will they will burn bright and then fade away with their hot hot heat <laughs> they're the um, 1080 yeah. snowboarding of bands Good way to put it, because there's like two albums of theirs that I think are <laughs> like they have an album now, like in 2002, and an album in like 2004. It's gonna be probably worth mentioning, and then we're probably gonna skip everything they release after that from their catalog. Um, but yeah, these were big records at the time. People really, really liked this band. Another can, can, Canadian indie rock. I mean, I'm mad living all of the same shit about these groups. I feel like, but it's Canadian indie rock uh, al- like album with a lot of art punk sound in it. So maybe something akin to like OK Go or the Vines even. It's not really garage rock, but it just feels in the vein of. And it's like 30 minutes long. People really liked this one. It sold well, and people really liked it. I, I didn't particularly enjoy it when revisiting it. Uh, Burn. And the, yeah, the last album to talk about from the pop rock category is Jason Mraz, Waiting for My Rocket to Come. You guys know oh, Mraz? sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the name yeah. sounds familiar, but I don't know any of What were the singles off this one? Um... The only one I wrote down was Remedy, which I think is like the biggest song. It's probably the only song I actually know from him. Hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, Remedy, I Won't Worry is the in parenthesis. This was a huge, huge uh, song for him. Actually, I have, I have a lot to say about this guy. I think his, his backstory is pretty pretty interesting. If for what, you want to know what his sound is like, I mean, you know, John, you already know. You, you, you said you know who this guy mm-hmm. is, but... You know, I, I consider him to sound a bit like... Imagine if you took John Mayer, but instead of an interest in the blues, you subbed it for reggae. Uh, and you basically got a singer-songwriter that uses a lot of reggae. Um, I don't know. It's it's He's just a very positive singer-songwriter. His music is very like simple, but also very sweet. He's very nice. He has a just kind of overwhelming sense of joy of being a musician. He doesn't really have downer tracks even at least that i recall from listening through this record a few times um i also think he's kind of underrated as a songwriter i was i was surprised at how clever a lot of his songwriting really was when you sat down and and actually read it um he is one of those guys that just seems like he is good to his fans like he plays long sets and is always there to shake the hands of fans and it just seems like he uh you know he's very grateful for where he is as a musician um like everything you read about this guy just seems you know, really makes you like him. He is like a panda bear of a human being. Um, you know. Because he doesn't fuck. <laughs> nope. <laughs> there is even a section on his Wikipedia about him being like a social justice warrior, which is really funny. He apparently like has a lot of liberal causes that he um, puts a lot of time and money towards. Okay. Okay. So you know, it's just just like he's like he is a good dude. He just seems like he is an all right person. So uh, his success makes makes me happy. Um, and this album sold a couple million copies. So a uh, good, good start to his career. Oh, and, and yeah, like um, this whole album, he released initially himself and toured on for like three years. He was very much like, I will become famous by playing shows in front of people. And that's exactly what happened. Like he just went around. People really liked his music. He was like, you know, you've, you've always you've probably gone to a bar and you've heard some musician there, but it's like, they're always good when they're playing the covers, but then they play their own stuff, and you're like, ugh. Mm. This is the guy that actually had the tunes. This is the guy that knew how to make some songs. Um, so, yeah, yeah, he really put in all the legwork to make it happen, got a big studio deal, and, yeah, like, totally turned it out. Like, really, really good to see this happen to a, to a musician like him who really tried. So, that's all I got to say there. Any closing thoughts on Jason Veraz? No, I agree. 
We're we're pro Jason Mraz on this podcast. Uh huh. Very good. Um. And okay. So now into the hip hop and R and B category. Only three albums, but I think each one is like so so cool. Um. The first one is Streets releasing original pirate material. You guys ever heard of Streets by any chance? Nope. It's kind of weird. There's an old band that I do remember, The Streets, but the only thing I can remember, they're like a British rap band. That is it. Yeah. That yeah. is it? Yeah. Was, this, I remember yeah. laughing at them when I was a kid because their music just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> I think it is very much, if you didn't have the context of like what he's doing, it probably does sound really silly. If, if, like, if, if you've grown up listening to American hip-hop, and that's kind of what you know, if you... If, that's your framework for what hip hop should sound like, and then you listen to him using essentially a bunch of like dance beats, like UK dance beats. And he's got like you know that British. I don't know where in England he's from or what that kind of accent is that he's using. Um, well, his accent, not that he's using. Like I got pulled this out for this album. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> what his accent's from? Um, As I understand, he's basically like. Um, he is from central north England, which is sort of like, imagine if you were saying this guy was from like fucking Pittsburgh yeah. or was from Cincinnati or something. I, I got, I got, it's, it's been like a decade since I listened to him literally. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 2002. Um, but yeah, I, I just remember I, it was weird because I, I listened to him because it was funny. And then as I listened to him a bit more, I was like, all right, this is actually kind of good. Like, <laughs> yeah. And he's like talking, and he uses a lot of slang. He uses a lot of British slang that doesn't mean what it means to us. Like he, because geezers to us kind of means somebody that's like old, and that's just his dude. So he says geezers a lot. He talks about geezers, and you have to remind yourself he's not talking about the elderly. <laughs> I know, but a little bit of background on this guy. His name's Mike Skinner. That's that's who this guy is, and he um he is uh, he's the MC of the project. He also produced the album himself. And like I said, he uses a lot of, uh, like, prior to this, there really wasn't a bunch of recognizable names in England for hip-hop. Hip-hop has always been a really American thing. And with this, he kind of made it his own. Like, he took the prevalent sound of UK dance music, which is Garage, um, and made this beautiful collection of tracks and then he's using his sort of like slice of life rhyming style with that very distinct accent. Like you've never heard anyone that yeah. sounds like this rapping. Um, and it's very much about that kind of, you know, like working middle class English guy. Like everything feels gray. You know, it's just very like dirty city streets and things like that. Um, it's hard to... Hard, he, it's like music concrete. Like he has a really good job of making it sound like he is in his environment that he that he's from. Um, and I think yeah, it's he has that kind of street level perspective. And it's not even like a street level perspective of like you know like hood drug dealer kind of thing. It's literally just about what it's like being an aimless teenager in England in this time. Um. So really, really cool, and I, I actually I, I do love this record. I think if I were listening to this album in two thousand two, I probably wouldn't have got it. It wouldn't have made sense, and I would, I would have been like, all right, it was whatever. Um, but I think as I've listened to a lot more hip hop, I can really, and especially a lot more garage, like two step garage, um, which is a really, really big sound in English dance music. 
for this album to really come alive and sound amazing. Um, and and tra- there are some great tracks on I'll just name some tracks. Has it come to this? It's too late. Um, let's push things forward. We becomes heroes. These are all really really good albums. It went. It sold three million copies globally, and it actually went double platinum in the UK. This was a huge, huge record, and it really does. We talked about a guy named Jest like a year ago, and that was like the first time I think we had talked about hip hop coming out of England, and that was not a very big record. I just thought it was interesting to bring up the fact that he was British and he was making hip hop music. Good for him. Um, but this is this is like a bona fide record that puts England legitimately on the hip hop scene. Um, very, very cool. Very, very cool. And, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about England. You know, you've got uh, the patriarchy over there. Here in America, though, we've got the kings of crunk. Lil John and the East Side Boys. <laughs> uh, they release a, another record. Um, and I, I, I love this record. I'm, I've, I think there's a, it is a really problematic record in a lot of ways, but it's also super enjoyable. Um, any thoughts on Lil John? You guys know him? At least it's like a human cartoon character. Yeah, I'm, no. f- I'm familiar with uh, Mr. Mr. John, but <laughs> not, not, not like super, like, as a person, not super familiar with his music. Yeah, you yeah. know him personally. Yeah, we text. <laughs> we text. Hey, I mean, if you ever go to Atlanta, there's a good chance you've, you've met the dude. Maybe he's, I don't know if you guys go to the same clubs, but... But then you'd have to be in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, John goes to the same clubs as little John. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so essentially, he's making crunk. Crunk is becoming a thing. Like this is terminology that's kind of coming around now that we just sort of accept. Crunk exists and twerking is a thing. Um, now it's just like it's 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 a joke. But this was sort of establishing culture for hip hop, at least southern hip hop. And what they're doing is a uh, melding together. You know, again, the the sounds of southern hip hop that you would get from like Manny Fresh Productions or Master P, and and putting that together with the the Miami bass sound that had been prevalent for like 15 years prior. And it works really, really well for him. Um, it just makes super anthemic, really loud. Um, I think it's a lot of like really raw like loops that he has. And he does this thing that works way better than it should, but he loves to just use like horns and like violins and stuff to just kind of like scatter them in the beats and it makes it sound far more pretentious than it really <laughs> is for music that is literally its sole purpose is to be played in strip clubs like this is this is like strip club music through and through that's that's what his the objective is here like on all of these records and i think that a lot of times the tracks are just fucking grating it's too much of him just like yelling at you like a drill instructor. He has no flow. There is like zero flow at all in like Lil John. Like you get, you know, if you listen to Mike Skinner of Streets like rapping, you get lost in his his capacity to weave a story. Little John is just like a cartoon character. Again, I say cartoon character, fucking yelling at you, not rhyming <laughs> in his songs. This is zero effort for flow, and what what it does. The only reason why it does work is because um, he, every just about every single trap track has guest stars on it, and he brings in this incredible lineup of guest stars. I'll name them off here. Some of them, There's like probably like half of them total, but uh, Pastor Troy, Jada Kiss, Styles P, Too Short, Mystical, E Forty, Eight Ball, Bun B, MJG, Fat Show, Trick Daddy, Pitbull, and the Yin Yang Twins are like. That's just some of them. Like, it's great. 
it's it's in the and again it's it's too long the album is way too fucking long and i think that most of these tracks like are six or seven minutes and they should be trimmed down to where it's less little john and more whoever is the guest Mm -hmm. um but when it works well (laughs) oh when it works it works like this music is great um and yeah there was of course the big single called get low um which was features the yin yang twins and it is one of the rappiest songs too like the rappiest as in like has the most not little john on it (laughs) um it's (laughs) you know he is he is fortunate to be such a talented producer that he gets to surround himself with all these other guys and give them the space to really put out some great tracks um, I, you know, we were talking about like what we listen to at the gym and I usually listen to a lot of metal, but I oftentimes will intersperse it with a lot of hip hop. And, um, a lot of the tracks on here are actually perfect for, for the gym. In my opinion, like I, I've been listening to a lot of all of the music we've listened to this month. I probably listened to this album more than anything else. I hate, like, it's wild to think, but I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff in spite of just like how, uh, like dirty it is as a record like it is this is sole purpose of this record is not to give the listener any greater understanding of anything it's music to be played at strip clubs and i don't go to strip clubs but uh for what it's worth like they've made some incredible songs um okay moving on one last one last hip-hop album and this is sort of like if that is low class and low brow what little john does i think the more cerebral end of the spectrum would be jurassic five uh, and Jurassic 5 released an album called Power in Numbers. Um, I feel like we just talked about an album of theirs called Quality Control. It was, I think, one of the best hip-hop records of the past few years, frankly. It's a really, really good record. Um, and what they do is a lot more of that like 80s hip-hop, that old sound. Um, so a lot of back-and-forth hype rhymes, just kind of passing the mic between a, a good crew of MCs. Um, and I think it's carried by production from Cut Chemist and DJ Newmark. So it sounds really good. Um, again, I, I, it's a very much a party record. It's a lot, so much easier to listen to and just appreciate and enjoy than a record like Little John, in spite of Little John being so good. All right, let's get moving on into punk. All right, we've got um, Alexis on Fire. You guys ever heard of these? No. It is, they're another Canadian outfit. Canada went big this month. Um, Apparently October yeah, they, month. Yeah, yeah. So this is a band that is cited as a touchstone act for like the emo scene that's going to happen in the early 2000s. Um, and I think it's just because they sort of nailed the aesthetic very, very well. Uh, they do a lot of dual vocals where it's like a clean singer and a screaming singer. A lot of really frantic like song structures. Like there's a lot of post-hardcore, but then just a lot of these like huge breakdowns and stuff. Um, Oh, and it's like dripping with melodrama. There's just so much fucking melodrama in this entire... The album is literally like two Catholic schoolgirls about to have a knife fight. Like it's, Perfect. It's, yeah, like tracks like 44... Yeah, tracks like 44 Caliber, Love Letter, A Dagger Through the Heart of St. Angelus, Pulmonary Archery. <laughs> like even in the song titles, you kind of get a sense of this. All right. Dripping melodrama. Um... It's a great record. It's really, really good. I enjoy it. I'm going to move on. I, I got a lot of records to get through, so let's, let's, let's keep moving. Lightning round. Okay. Th- this is one where, John, you should probably take point. Uh, good Charlotte? Oh, the sure. Hopeless? Yeah, so so this one, a uh, second uh, studio album from Good Charlotte. Um, 
A couple of singles off of this one that I think are uh, noteworthy. Uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous might be their their biggest single. And that, that one's uh, kind of fun. The, I think the anthem is a really good one, as well as The Young and the Hopeless. I think that's my, my favorite track off of the album. Um, you know, it's uh, like this pop punk sound, a little bit of emo in there. There are times where like they they're dealing with some like some really heavy subject matter, like like there's a song about suicide, and they actually have like uh, like vocal testimonials from people who have lost a loved one to suicide who are like going there like, hey, don't do it. Um, uh, a song like Riot Girl is a really fun, quick song. There's this a couple of times throughout the album, this strange almost like alt-right men's rights theming throughout the song i'm thinking about in particular is called <laughs> boys and girls where like the chorus the refrain in this song is girls don't like boys girls like cars and money um and maybe they're being tongue-in-cheek but when you say these sorts of things over and over again you're giving license for other people to say these things um it, it, it's it's very much this uh, this this sort of like uh, misogyny, not in the way that women are objectified, but in the way like no, the real like sexism is coming back the other way, and people hate men rather than being misogynistic toward women. Uh, that was a strange one, and that's that's uh, was a difficult one to listen to, twenty one years on. Um, but other it also doesn't doesn't make sense because women don't don't like cars right any more than they are a status symbol right there's women out there who like cars there are some but like the quote-unquote gearheads i've met like go to like a car night go to a car meetup where it's like people that like check out their cars and shit and tell me how many women you see it's probably better odds at a metal show and that's bad (laughs) you know the um proportionally speaking there are probably more men who are interested in cars than there are a proportional amount of women who are interested in cars. Why the why the fuck is this the subject? Um, good point. It, it, good point. It, it, why does it matter? Yeah. Why does it matter? <laughs> it doesn't matter. There are women who like cars, but proportionally speaking, there are probably more men who are into cars. Uh, as far as like the the mechanics, the machinery of it, but that doesn't make a difference. Uh, so can hear, like, Can I tell you why? Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. Otherwise, otherwise I think this this album was was pretty good. Uh, a little bit long at 45, almost 46 minutes, but, you know. That's brisk. For for, for what they're, they're laying down, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, there, there's probably a couple of tracks you could have cut to trim that down. But I, th- I think, like, the the big songs on this are, like, all, all a lot of fun in the way, like, Blink-182 songs are fun. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like, Loser Anthem, mm-hmm. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous were, were really big hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, for reference, I think it sold 3 million copies. This album did really, really well. And it's a really professional production on this. It sounds great. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess the point I want to make sort of piggybacks off of what you were saying there, because, like, in that song, they're basically complaining that women want money. And, like, this entire album is around, you know, like, Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous is... is 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 dragging on rich people Mm -hmm. basically like most of the music on here is very like anti-capital not i shouldn't say anti-capitalism i don't think that's how it's intended to be read i think like it's a way that you could read it but i read it almost like in the way that you know they're the 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 way that the media is depicting 
uh, uh, the rich and famous people is more of the problem rather than we have people with with all this money. I think like it, it's again like this this like sort of like Joe Rogan listener like you're so close. You're so close to addressing the actual right. issue, but then you veer off and pick the wrong target. Yeah, and and that's what I think is so strange is that this band is using punk music, which is anti-capitalist at its core, as a medium, and they're making this super slick, polished, radio-friendly album, while simultaneously, like they want to wear the punk leather jacket mm-hmm. to get like the cred, and they do, but. But then they also want to make millions hmm. off of this this hit music, and you know, and, and like the, their lived experience is real, and they talk about it on their record. Like you're saying, they've lost friends and they lost loved ones. They had an abusive father who ran out on their family. I get it. Not not everything was easy for 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 this this group, but at the same time, like mm, you, you you talk about minor threat, and then you're you're fucking on MTV. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're go- you're going on like Total Request Live and shit. Like, what's that about? What's yeah, that? There, there's a sort of like uh, uh, some some very real experiences, like some some very like honest experiences that they're they're sharing this. But there's like slightly too little introspection. It's it's a it's a bit sophomoric, which I guess is appropriate for their second album. Um, the, the the way that they they're thinking about the issues that they're trying to sing about. Yeah. Um, but then again, also, the, the, it's who this demo that they're targeting it mm-hmm. towards, and, and they really like it, and that's that's kind of what's important. At the end of the day, it's like Avril Lavigne. It's like Sum 41 and Blink-182. You know, it's it's music that probably got a lot of people into punk rock in the first place. Mm. So, you know, good for them. Like, you know, they got theirs. Like, it's cool. Um, moving on, All-American Rejects. They released their self-titled album. Oh, this is yeah. a pretty big band. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is the album that has the single Swing Swing. Um, so this is one that would be initially released on a small label called Doghouse that would get picked up by a major label. and They'd make a lot of money selling records of this one. It was a, it was a big, big hit. Um, I don't have much to say about it beyond that, though. Uh, also, Hot Water Music releases Caution. I love Hot Water Music so much. They are a great band. They are, uh, I've always compared them to like if uh, Bruce Springsteen made punk music. This is what Hot Water Music would be. Um, they're from, yeah, yeah. They're from Gainesville. Great, great guitar work. They have this dual guitar setup that they have, or both of them. It's like they're both simultaneously just playing lead guitar, and they weave in and out with each other. They sound amazing. Uh, very, very, kind of raw, immediate, energetic punk music. I absolutely love it. And this is, I think, their best album. They got a lot of really good records as a band. Caution is probably my favorite. Uh, Remedy, Trusty Chords, I Was on a Mountain, Wayfair are just fantastic songs. I would absolutely recommend people give it a listen. Last album uh, for punk is Transplants. Do you guys know the Transplants? No. Album? It is a super group. It consists of Tim Armstrong, who is the singer for Rancid. You've got uh, Travis Barker, the drummer of Blink-182, and a guy named Rob Aston, who was the roadie for Rancid. I don't know if it's a super group, if it's a roadie, but, you know, he's there. Also, not cr- well, he's credited, but not as, like, a main member but Vic Ruggiero, who is the keyboardist and singer and songwriter for the band The Slackers, is on there. This is a, kind of a rap rock record. It's an odd one. Um, I don't really like the album 
it just doesn't really click for me. I'm just I didn't really enjoy it. Um, and I've, I've tried multiple times to get into this band transplants. Eh, it just doesn't work. I get what they're going for. Like it's it's a lot of them trying to to pull together these various influences from the music that influenced their other main projects, but doesn't sound like those projects. Um, there's a big track on here called Diamonds and Guns as well. But that's it. That's all I gotta say there. Um, so electronic and ambient. Uh, again, I'll try to get through these last ones. Like we're already, I'm sure, way over budget on time. Cigaros. Uh, yeah, we're over budget. <laughs> yeah, we're going. We're going way long on this, so. this. This is going deep in my pocket here, Ryan. I mean, I don't think we have the the funds for this. <laughs> I was hoping we would talk a lot about the movies. I think the movies and we will. <laughs> and we will. Okay, but the uh, and this was certainly the album of the month. Cigaros. Okay. This is an album called the like bracket album. I guess it's like two parentheses side by side. It doesn't actually have, like, a name. Uh, so they are from Iceland. I think it's absurd that Iceland is, like, a nation of, like, 250,000 people, and they just, like, all of them make music. Uh, so much music comes out of Iceland per capita. It's kind of unbelievable. Um, this is a post-rock band that makes kind of shimmery, ambient music with a lot of grandeur, uh, like, these big sort of orchestral things, like the kind of music that you could imagine, like... The clouds part and the angels descend from the heaven and it's fucking Sigaros is playing. Um, yeah, and by, by the way, I'll spell that because that's kind of a weird name. S-I-G-U-R space R-O-S. Sigaros, if people aren't, aren't familiar with them. Um, I am a bigger fan of the album that came out before this. One that, we before we started talking about music on our retro show, um, they released an album that's like called Agis to Burgeon or something like that. Um and I love that record so much. I've listened to it a hundred times. It's a great, great record. And this one was fun to listen to. I, I do like this record a lot. This, this other one called Bracket Album. It doesn't quite hit the same way. Uh, one of the big changes is that instead of having the like Icelandic uh, orchestra perform as they had on their previous record, they instead use a group called Amina, A-M-I-I-N-A, which is just a string quartet. So they replace them with the string quartet. So it's a little bit more... Uh, it's it's not such a big record. It's a little bit more immediate. It's a little bit more loose, and you can tell that there's a little bit more improvisation as they're recording. I mean, all, all that's take away. Just like listen to the record. I think it's a really really beautiful record. You have an album, a compilation. We don't typically talk about compilations. I thought this was kind of interesting to bring up. It's called The Fire This Time, um, and this is a it's a weird thing to think about, but it's 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 a documentary with ambient music. It is a documentary that talks about um, the 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 Gulf the first Gulf War. Hmm. It's it's very strange huh. because you know if you're sitting in in October of 2002, next within a year we will be invading Iraq for the second time, and they made this album that sort of documents why, you know, the U.S. On, and the United Nations intervenes in Iraq in the first place in the 90s. Um, and it's a whole collection of these ambient tracks from various composers, uh, Aphex Twin, uh, Speedy J, Soma, Pansonic, are all on there with essentially just like um, archival recordings uh, that sort of spell out the history of it in this kind of chronology going from the 60s until the very end of it. It's heart-wrenching at times. It's really rough to listen to. And I hadn't, really, I don't really hear anything like it. It's not that common. I think nowadays there's a guy called Purient that makes dark ambient that uses a lot of stuff uh, centered around war in the Middle East. 
Um, he has a whole project called Vat uh, Vatican Shadow where he does this. And I love it, but it's also very, like, niche. Very niche and, and gritty. Um, a interesting way to consume the real history of it, because uh, it was a very, very ugly series of events that occurred. Uh, moving on, uh, we've got Amon Tobin, um, Out From Outwear. We've talked about Amon Tobin before. He's a Brazilian IDM composer. Isn't this just a good collection of, of breakbeat and drum and bass? Yeah, yeah I mean... I remember this stuff probably a little bit better than you guys do because, you know. Uh, but Amon Tobin actually really is one of the best IDM uh, composers of this era. Uh, lastly, a band that could have just as easily slid into the metal category, but I keep them in ambient, but uh, Mono, uh, called uh, One Step More and You Die. Uh, in spite of that grim-sounding name, they're, a Jap they're like a very sweet band. They're a Japanese post-rock band. Um, the they make music kind of like Explosions in the Sky or... Uh, not the terrorist group ISIS, but the band ISIS. Mm, mm -hmm. um, a lot of eight-minute tracks with big uh, swells of distortion. You know, very. It's, it's a lot of amplifier worship, um, and you know, you, ha you have to be patient to listen to an eight to ten-minute track to begin with. But I think it's very beautiful music they make. Uh, and then into the metal category, we've only got five. Well, four to talk. Five to talk about, really, but just four. Uh, Chevelle. Uh, wonder what's next. Do you guys like Chevelle? Have you ever heard of them? Oh yeah, I know them. Yeah, I know. Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah, I like them a lot, and and this this record especially um, really got a hold of me. If it wasn't Lil John, I was listening to this record quite a bit. Um, they have kind of a bad reputation because of the crowd that they run with. They're very much the type of band you would probably be seeing like touring with like a Nickelback, mm. perhaps a Creed. Shine down. Yeah, probably something like that. But no, no, they essentially make um, sort of this post-grunge new metal stuff that I think kind of gets into sludge metal at some points. It's really fucking heavy. To me, it reminds me if you took like Tool and Deftones and mixed them together. Mm. Um, it's only a three-piece, and I think you have to keep in mind because how fucking loud this record is, how great it sounds. The production is so, so good. Lots of really good songs. Um, again, it's just really fucking heavy, too. Like, this album, this, this, you know, really, it's a lot of mid-tempo tracks, but this album really fucking goes. Uh, tracks like The Red and Send the Pain Below were big singles. I like it a lot. It sold 2 million copies, too. It was actually a really big seller. I was surprised this record sold as much as it did. Next, we've got um, Anthology of Dead Ends by Botch. Botch is a band from Seattle. I love them. I think they're great. One of the best metalcore bands. And this is also the last thing that they would release before splintering off into a bunch of other side projects. It's 20 minute long, a six track EP. Oh, it's the last, yeah, it's the last thing they're going to release as a group. I think they, well, they literally just got back together and recorded exactly one song. Um, and they said they're not recording anymore. Mm. Um, so they, they technically, technically will make one more song in the next 21 years. Um, so I love these guys. They, they are fucking incredible. I think most people look back on that era and think like Converge and Dillinger Escape Plan. Botch deserves to be mentioned right alongside them because they are fucking amazing. And this also has, album also has a really funny gimmick where it's like all the tracks are the names of nations, but they replace the N's with M's. I have no idea why. So like there's a track called Framps. Okay. And Af Afghanistan. Okay. <laughs> you know, Nicaragua. <laughs> It's it's just delightfully silly. I don't know why they did it, but it's such a cute. The thing. United States. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Behemoth, which is a Polish death black 
mix metal band. Uh, it's like equal parts death metal, equal parts black metal. Um, released Zoskaya Cultist, which means or Zoskaya Cultist, in parenthesis here and beyond. I'll say it again. The band's Behemoth. If I didn't get that out right, um, it's a good record. This is a really really good record. It just gets a little monotonous over time. Really high BPM drum work, um, but just instead, it's like uh, we talk about. I, I, you guys make fun of me every time I bring them up, but I'm going to continue to bring up the band Pig Destroyer. I think they're one of the best metal bands of this time and era. Yeah, and look at the pigs I, I do to you. My, my goodness. Yeah, you know, uh, I think this band. It it sounds like that in some ways, but just without the chaotic structures and stuff could they change um, the name to boar destroyer because that's a legit problem i think i think i told you guys this their record label made them change their name because they were going to be called cop destroyer <laughs> <laughs> they are not talking about the animal they are they are very much like <laughs> a cab mm. uh, as as an as an outfit i know uh, i mean i don't know they're just very they have they have some anarchistic streaks and them but yeah they, that's why they call themselves pig destroyers to give themselves a little bit of cover to me like we're not talking about law enforcement wink um i know i i think that the album just kind of drones on a little bit um i think that tracks are a little too samey uh but it's still a really enjoyable record it's some of the hardest music you're gonna hear in this this time in in 2002 very few bands were bringing it as hard as behemoth did um last one i really want to talk about is immolation released unholy cult they're a staple of like the 90s New York death metal scene. Very niche, very specific thing. But they are one of the biggest bands of that era and of that sound. Um, and at first, like the production's a little muddy, so at first you might not think there's a lot happening there. But it is super intricate, very, very detailed, especially the drum work is unbelievable on this. Um, riffs for days. The album just is great. It's the sort of thing where like I get bored listening to Behemoth and I never get bored listening to this Immolation record. They are always doing something that keeps you engaged as a listener. Um, and even though they are not produced nearly as well as Behemoth's record is. like, I, w- I would totally recommend, yeah, Immolation on Holy Cult. I'm actually going to go see them in a few weeks too. Like here in the, in, in the you know present time of 2023, they're on tour um, and they're going to be playing at the Abbey here in Orlando. So... I'm excited for that. It'll be fun. Nice. And last, lastly, Lacuna Coil releases Comalize. Uh, Lacuna Coil is like a... I think they're from England. They're like a goth rock band. I didn't have much to say about them. I only mentioned them because they were popular and people really liked them. I think their sound is a little bit, uh, a little bit silly and melodramatic, but it's not, not bad. And if you like goth rock, probably give them a listen. Oh, and we're done. That's it. That's all the music. We did it. And you already said the, you already said the album of the month. It was the Icelandic Did I? One. No, I mean that's that's what that's what album of the year would tell you. Oh, okay. Was the album well, what's, what's the album of the month then? Oh my god, do I have to say Lil John? I think it, I, I would say Chevelle or Lil John. Do you have to say Lil John? I mean, you could, you could say Chevelle if you want to. Which album do you like the most? Album I want to say it's Chevelle and the East Side Boys. Wonder what's crunk. <laughs> I'm gonna combine them both. <laughs> no, no. If I have to pick one, if I have to pick one, I will say Chevelle. Wonder what's next. That was a really really good record. Cool. All right, movies. Here, yeah, let's do here it, we man. go. What's first up on the list? The first one I have listed here is Red Dragon. Okay, this did is you watch Red Dragon? The the third movie in the uh, the sort of um, 
lineup of movies based on Hannibal Lecter, the other character, the Anthony Hopkins reprising the role. Uh, and again, we're getting mm-hmm. a um, oh, Silence of the Lambs, of course, the first one I think it was in 1995. Then I think it was what was it last year that we talked about Hannibal, and now we're getting Red Dragon another year later. So kind of back to back here, and Hannibal was a sequel to Silence of the Lambs. And then Red Dragon is a prequel. It gives some backstory, so you get uh, Anthony Hopkins yes. back in prison and helping out uh, um, Edward Norton try to catch this this other killer. I think played by uh, Ray Fiennes was the that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think like with every one of these these movies in this series, you're kind of getting diminishing returns on the quality. Like Red Dragon, it's fine. But I think what it really lacked, like, you, you don't get, like, the, the surprise, the shock of Hannibal Lecter as a character anymore. He's kind of a known quantity at this point, uh, especially just having a movie with him in it pretty prominently uh, last year or the year before. And then the the sort of uh, proxy character for Buffalo Bill from, from Silence of the Lambs uh, is played by Ray Fiennes, and he's not nearly as sort of, like, charismatic or captivating as Buffalo Bill was, and the stakes weren't as high in Red Dragon as they were uh, with with Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs because he doesn't have the girl down in the well. He's sort of like stalking slash romancing this other uh, actress in the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And and it, it, it just never felt like, as we're watching Edward Norton try to track down this character with the help of... Anthony Hopkins, it never felt like the danger was imminent. And they were really, again, relying on uh, Anthony Hopkins as well as um, Ray Fiennes to keep carrying the movie forward. But like I was saying, Anthony Hopkins' Hannibal Lecter performance, while good, not nearly as shocking as it had been before. And like uh, Ray Fine's not nearly as interesting as Buffalo Bill or the the Gary Oldman character in Hannibal. So you know, I thought this movie was fine, but I didn't. Uh, I don't know. I I, I didn't uh, like it as much as the other ones. Yeah. Well, we are gonna diverge pads on this. Please, I'm gonna continue. tell you why this is one of the best films of the year. No, I'm, yes. I'm kidding. Tell me, tell me why John's wrong. <laughs> I'm kidding. I think I'm a little more positive on this movie than you are. Um. I actually liked this movie. I, like so, the last one that was made was by Ridley Scott. Mm. You know, he made Hannibal, and this one's made by Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner is kind of a garbage director. Um, and, and I think person. how you really feel about like a garbage and director person, and, and person. person. Yeah, yeah, he got caught up in the whole Me Too shit. Um, yeah, so so like Ridley Scott is a better director, just like on the merits. Honestly, I think I enjoyed this movie a little more than Hannibal. I think it was just genuinely a bit more entertaining as a film. Um, I think that lack of screen time that you get from Hopkins is to its benefit. Uh, I think Ray Fiennes uh, brings an energy to this movie and his relationship, his vulnerable relationship with Emily Watson, I actually kind of found interesting. I think they worked really, really well together on screen. And I think that there was a kind of humanity to it that you don't see in the other ones. Um, and, I mean, I don't know. And again, I don't want to make it seem like this movie's great. Like, it's not great. It's, 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 it's a bit more entertaining. And I, I, th- I do like Edward Norton as an actor. I think that 
you know, the time that he spends, he, he seems to spend more time with Anthony Hopkins than anybody. And those are some interesting exchanges for the most part. But, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think that was really like what was going to drive the movie. It really is Ray Fiennes in his performance, which he really does do, do a very good job with. He's very admirable in this film. Um, and I think the supporting cast is really good. I like Harvey Keitel a lot. Philip, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, Bill Duke is the police chief. Like, fucking choice choice casting there. He is an amazing police chief. Uh, he is also, by the way, just simply credited as police chief. So. <laughs> Didn't even bother to give him a first name. Um, or, or even a Mary last Louise name, Parker. which is police chief. Like, just call him Chief Irons. Who cares? Just give him a name. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was his name. He, he, his first name was Police. <laughs> his last name was Chief. <laughs> That's a good point. That is actually his name. That's his actual name. Was he, was just, name. he was just sitting behind a desk. We don't know what he, he was doing from, there. He could have just been the night from, shift. He comes from a very long line of chiefs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, so... And I think, yeah, this is just yet another movie in this era. And probably to this day, they're still making movies like this, but one that revels in, like, BS pseudoscience and profiling. Mm. Like, profiling did nothing to help this fucking case. Like, what what ultimately cracked the case is that they found that the whole movies were made from the same company, and then the guy that did it worked for the company. Like, duh. Fucking duh. I mean, and, like, and that's sort of like Edward Norton's role. It's like, he's supposed to get in there and like, get in the mind of the person who perpetrated the crime and try to kind of work backwards to figure out, like, who sh- who could have done this to find out who did do it. And, like, even at the very beginning of the movie, when it shows, like, how he uh, got Hannibal Lecter in prison in the first place, like, he was working with him. Like, he was working with the person who did the crime right. and didn't figure yeah. it out until, like, the, um, the ninth hour and almost died because of it. Didn't know it was the guy he was working with. Yep. So, d- like, top-notch wow. work. So they're bringing him in to crack this case. And, and, wow. what, like, and what actually, like... Uh, led him to Hannibal Lecter as the actual killer at the very beginning of the movie was not like some sort of like genius uh, uh, intuition and profiling. It was just like standard police work. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. And like the whole idea of this concept of him being the red dragon, this being this evil thing that he suppressed within himself that would come out. It's like, all right, sure, whatever. I'm sure there are uh, crazy people and serial killers like that. Um you know, that, again, that wasn't really what sold it for me. I, I just, I really did dig the performances in it. Um, and I think it was, yeah, just, just kind of just more entertaining ride of a story than spending any more time with Hannibal Lecter. Like, Silence of the Lambs is great, but I realized when I got done with Hannibal, it's like, I didn't need another Lecter film. Oh, and, and you know, and it, Hannibal <laughs> is so gruesome. Like, this movie yeah. was, like, definitely toned down. Like, there's some, like, depictions of, like, self-torture, but, like, it, it's really toned down in, in terms of, like, just how gruesome it is and gory at parts uh, compared to Hannibal. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'd actually, I would recommend this movie. I, I think, I mean, if you were going to go back and watch them all, like, just watch Silence of the Lambs, mm. sure. But if it's October in 2002 and you're wanting to watch a, a scary movie, it's a pretty good one, honestly. Um, do you guys want to do box office? Yeah, let's do box office. Stuff? Oh gosh. Uh, okay. What do you think? It, what do you think it costs? Do you have the numbers? Uh, no, I, I have the numbers. Yeah, if you know. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, okay. What do you uh, think how, it cost? How big was Edward Norton during the time? Uh, fresh he's out got, of Fight Club. Yeah, he's got some big. I know we're not supposed to talk about yeah, it, but <laughs> um, I I will I will venture a guess of forty million dollars. 
Okay. I'll go 35. It was 78. Oof, pricey. Oof. Pretty pretty expensive. Yeah. What do you think it made it in the box office? I think it definitely made its money back. Uh, how oh, popular yeah. was the, the the sort of Hannibal Lecter cinematic universe at this point? Um, I'm I'm gonna go big. I'll go 250 million. I was just gonna go flat too. Ooh, Wes is closer. 209. Mm, pretty pretty good. Ooh, so yeah. it it did pretty well. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, then moving on. I got a number of movies. I did the next three movies. I didn't even watch, so I don't know how much we want to talk about them. But Pokemon Forever, the fourth Pokemon film. I did not watch that one either. Yeah, we we did a we do a Pokemon show. <laughs> we didn't watch. Oh, and, and you know, for what it's worth, actually, I should bring this up. Like, there is no way to watch it. Oh, oh. I couldn't. Like, I'm sure that there are torrenting sites that you could download the movie at. But the only way that you are able to watch, like Amazon Prime will not sell you a rental. Mm. No one will sell you a rental of this movie. The only way to watch it is through the Pokemon app, a downloadable app that you can get, which streams their various anime and movie content. And it's only on rotation. So at any given point, they've only got a couple of movies available. So then next month, new movies come up. So you can watch Pokemon Forever right now through any ethical means, but maybe in like... January or maybe in March or something, it'll be in rotation and you can watch wow, it then. You can't even buy a copy, like a physical copy on Amazon. Oh, probably buy a second DVD hand. of it. You might second yeah, hand. You can right? get a DVD of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one I'm waiting here. for the box. Oh, but still, sixteen bucks you have to pay for this thing. Right, I, bucks. I'm talking more like streaming. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, no, doing I know. I'm just saying you have to resort to something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in order to watch this thing. And I, I, I did want to watch it. If we were doing a retro show like 10 years ago, we would have to resort to trying to get physical copies of these things. It's <laughs> a good point. That's where the uh, the Netflix comes mm. into play. Yeah, get those red envelopes. Yeah. May they rest in peace. <laughs> Man, I miss those red envelopes. I should have kept going as long as I could. I mean, like we, we got to a point where even I wasn't getting them anymore. So... <laughs> Those three people decided to move mm-hmm. on with their lives. <laughs> That's a shame. So yeah, um, I couldn't find a listed budget for this film. I'm guessing not much. And it made, I'll just tell you guys, yeah. it made $40 million in the theaters. Mm. That's not bad. Yeah, it's not Next great. we got... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, that's fine. Uh, again, not not the best, but you know, what do you expect? Again, they they make a they make a Pokemon movie like every year. So now, I guess when you, like if you compare to like, other anime movies that are coming out around this time, yeah, so pretty pretty respectable. Because what was it like the last anime that we talked about? Uh, was it was it Metropolis? Yeah, that that it didn't made, make anything. Made Ten million. Mm. Yeah, um, I think we talked about Vampire Hunter D mm. before that. Bloodlust, which I'll bring it up. I only bring it up to say that it fucking slays. That movie is amazing. Um, but yeah, I think again it made like eight million dollars. This is nothing. Um, okay, moving on. Punch Drunk Love. This is a movie I have seen. I just did not go back to watch it. Uh, I've yeah. seen it as well. It's the Paul Thomas Anderson with Adam Sandler yes. as the lead character. Mm-hmm. I have seen this one as well. Not in a long, long right. time. I did not revisit it. What was this all about? Uh, it's about a guy. Doesn't he like have some kind of gambling debt or something? It, it's such. It's a very, very low stakes story, and this guy is a total pussy. And then at the end, the girl is like, "You're still a pussy, but I guess I'll be with you." Did I get? Did I, did I hit the beats? That's love. That's love. Oh my <laughs> god! I mean, it, no, no. It was, and I, yeah, I think like the novelty of this one was like it's Adam Sandler not being a complete doofus. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah. A, a serious mm. movie. I think the last time we talked about Adam Sandler was in Little Nicky, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. And I will say, like, Punch Drunk Love is a tough movie to watch, but it's a very well-made movie. This movie has, like, 90-something percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Lots of people cite it as their favorite movie. It's it's Adam Sandler showing he can act. It's great. It's just really fucking depressing. Or... And this guy is such a, such a loser. Or is it Paul Thomas Anderson showing he can work with anybody? That's a good point. Because, like, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson, does he have, like, a bad movie in the filmography? Like, he's a really good director. No. no, 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 he doesn't. But, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think probably it is It is definitely a well-made film, and it's worth revisiting. Or, I mean, it's, no, I wouldn't say worth revisiting. It's worth seeing if you haven't seen it. Uh, again, because I know I'm in the minority, because I'm kind of, you know, I'm dragging this movie a little bit here. But it's, yeah, it, it's it's definitely good. You're going to get some well-crafted cinema. Yes. Yeah. And God, I just remember him being such like an insufferable loser. He's very pathetic. Yeah. It's like, could we get John Cusack for this? No, he's not available? Cool. Get me the guy from Little Nicky. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I don't know what you would say. Like, you know, he, he makes John Cusack looks like look like he's fucking Spicoli or something. <laughs> I have no idea. Um. But the movie cost. I'll just tell you. I mean, do you want to guess? Do you, no, do no, you no. That's, that's okay. Because it's the same budget and box office: twenty-five and twenty-four. Oof. So Oof. just about broke even. Mm. Um, rules of Attraction. I don't remember this Did one. You? No. Obviously, I didn't this watch based, it. Yeah. So this is based on a Brett Easton Ellis film, uh, or book. Sorry, and it is apparently the brother of Patrick Bateman. Okay. Um, in college as a drug dealer. Hmm. Um, it's a. It's basically like it's, and it stars James Vanderbeek uh, as the wow. brother. I'm so, in. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, you, you shouldn't be there. This movie's pretty <laughs> bad. Um, as I remember, this movie was pretty bad. It's basically yeah. It's basically just a bunch of like dirtbag college kids being shitty to each other. Hmm. Like ima- ima- imagine if oh guys, it sounds so shitty to say. Imagine if like American Pie was a drama, hmm. <laughs> instead of. Like slapstick, gross-out comedy. It's yeah. It's it's really just the kind of uh, emotional slapstick violence of these relationships. I remember watching it and just being really like, just kind of not into it. it. It was just not great. And I'm not alone in that. This one actually does not have great reviews either. Uh, so, you know, it just has a bunch of the big names from this era, including your boy James Vanderbeek. Hell yeah. Um, I'll move on. Oh, cost four million and it made eleven, so it's just sort of a blip on the radar. Um, the transporter came out. That, that's you a movie. Transporter. That's a movie that's got some violence. It's got some drugs. It's got Jason Statham. Is this like his? Is this the big movie yeah. where we all discovered Jason Statham? I think this was the transporter. Yeah. Uh, he had been in. I think. What? Who is that British? Oh, Guy Ritchie. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think he was in both of Guy mm-hmm. Ritchie's prior films. Yeah, Lockstock, Two Lockstock Smoking Barrels, and, and Snatch. Yeah, so he he was around, but he didn't carry those films or anything. Right. So this is the the first kind of bringing of Jason Statham to an American audience. Um, and it's interestingly enough, it's directed by a guy named Corey Ewan, um, who is a Chinese director. He's made like over a dozen films, but all in China. Um, and he would only make two more films after this, and they wouldn't be transporter movies. Is he okay? Um, even though this becomes a franchise. I'm sure he's fine unless he uh, you know, he offended the Chinese Republic in some way. Mm. 
Um, that's, that's Haven't a, we all? That's a good way to get in trouble. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I watched the movie. Like, um, I think it simultaneously is like try. It's sort of like a classier version of Fast and the Furious mm-hmm. or the that triple X movie that we talked about with Vin Diesel and Statham actually has a little bit more command of the stage. Like he's just a better, he's a better actor, kind of a little bit more enjoyable to watch on screen. He's got a bit more gravity, like a bit more yeah, severity. Yeah. Um, although I guess my, my big complaint is that it uses a lot of like the, and there, there is a lot of car chasing stuff and there is a lot of like combat, like hand to hand combat and stuff in it. But I think it's weird because well, one, they use the whole born style of like shaky cam so you, you don't really get to see the fights. You get to see, like, you're seeing a lot of quick cuts and close-up stuff when, you know, this is like a Chinese director, like, that's, ant- a- you know, antithetical to their style of kung fu movie. Mm. Uh, or, sorry, of just, just martial arts films where it's, you know, filmed further away and you see the action and you kind of see the ballet. And in this one, it's very, like, you know, just, like, meat slapping against meat. It's not not enjoyable. And also I hate the shaky cam. I I hate the shaky cam when they do that. I just I don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it can work I, in certain contexts, but in this one, it's just. I've seen certain. Yeah. I've seen certain movies like it, it. I the shaky cam always makes me think of um. Oh God, what was it? It was a weird alien invasion movie. It was like Schindler's uh, List, uh, Battle L.A. or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I like, think you're right. It was like Battle of Los Angeles or something like that. Yeah. yeah, something like that. It was some kind of thing where like Marines are trying to get people out, and there's an alien invasion, and they're fighting aliens. But they're literally just sitting in an office talking, and the camera is shaking all over the place. I'm like, why is this a thing? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I would also comment that um, there are, that this is like a movie with a lot of Chinese people in it, and all of the martial arts is being done by British and French people. <laughs> like, it's made by a Chinese director. At no point did he think, hey, maybe we should use the people that are, like, the best in the world at it. And it's like, no, let's get uh, five foot five Jason Statham out there. <laughs> we'll let him throw down. Um, and I think, you know, if you watch this movie at first, you kind of buy into the, like, okay, this is sleeker. This is cooler. This is, like, you know, French. It's got some sophistication to it. And then there's about an hour in where there is literally, I kid you not, I'm not making this up, there is a greased up fight where he, Jason Statham intentionally greases himself up so he can't be wrestled <laughs> by the people he's fighting. <laughs> and at that point, it just sort of became a comedy. <laughs> it turned into a slapstick <laughs> comedy. <laughs> For me, it did. At this point, I was like, I cannot take this seriously. It was so stupid. Um, well, you know, I mean, honestly, it's it's, it's better than Triple X. <laughs> it's a better movie than Triple yeah, there, X. There's a low bar for, like, action movies at this point. Yeah. Oh, and the score is way, way too loud and makes no sense. It's like the score is was not cohesively put together. It, I don't know if they had a bunch of different composers contributing different stuff. But the music never tonally fits, and it's never the same. Uh, so Movie of the month? That. Possibly. Uh, budget? What do, you think, uh, what do you think they spent on a transfer? Uh, Wes, you're first. Oh God, I don't know. Would spawn a trilogy. 60. Would spawn a trilogy. We're, we're it's an action movie. I'm gonna go fifty. Fifty. Okay. What do you got? I will actually go lower. I'll go forty. A of a, a sparse twenty. Oh. Twenty million. Wow. How thrifty. But yeah, it must have done something twenty or better yeah. in order to make a trilogy out of it. So what do you think it made in the box office? 
Oh, I'll go 80. I'm going to go higher. I'll go 100 million. Oh, these are big bets. Uh, 43. Oh, geez. I mean, it doubled its budget, yeah. but yeah, not not, yeah. not that big. Uh, all right. Okay, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but I think this probably is the movie of the month. The Ring. Mm. Gore Verbinski's The Ring. God, here he is. John? Ugh, I hate this movie. Wes, take us away. No, God, no. I just don't like horror movies. Especially like horror movies with like dead little girls. They're like, oh, God, I just, I hate this movie. But would you believe this? This dead little girl is Devaney Chase. The voice of Lilo. The voice of Lilo from Lilo and Stitch. Oh, nice. Oh, that's funny. That's (laughs) funny. That's pretty great. No, I remember, I don't know if you guys were finding this story funny or not, but I remember when I saw The Ring uh, back in high school, I went to bed that night, and I was freaked out because I hate The Ring. I hate scary movies. And I I get into bed, pull up my covers, and I shut my eyes, and I left my door open to the hallway, and we have a light on in the hallway for um, the dog so it doesn't like bump into walls and crap. And I, I close my eyes, and I open my eyes, and I look up in the ceiling, and the light from the hallway made a perfect ring from the movie on my ceiling. <laughs> I remember yelling and then running across the room and slammed the door shut. So... <laughs> But you didn't watch the tapes. You'd have been safe. Yeah, well, you know, I watched the tape on the movie, so, I mean, I don't know if there's, like, a second-hand curse that can be contracted. No, I doubt it. That's not how the movie works. <laughs> that's it. That's a, you know what would be great? You know, here's what I would have fucking loved. Who was the team that lost to the Astros in the World Series where they were videotaping? I would love it if they intentionally put the ring tape into the <laughs> play box view that they were filming from. <laughs> so all of the... <laughs> Excuse me, all of the different Astros. While they would have won the World Series, yes, they would have all died seven days later. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember who they were. Oh, the, maybe the Dodgers. It might have been the Dodgers. <laughs> so the Dodgers, they would get their justice. <laughs> they were like, hey, they would probably, if the entire team died, don't they probably get the trophy? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. You know. Um, what are we actually going to say about the ring? Do you, do you have any opinions on it? I mean, I can, I can <laughs> talk about like, the ring. What do you this think is about like a, a really different flavor of horror than we'll see out of something like another horror movie that came out this month, uh, Ghost Ship. So uh, there, there are a lot of times that I think one of the more like off-putting things about this movie is that the, the characters, especially like our, our lead uh, Naomi Watts, she's, she's constantly doing things. So you're like, no, why are you doing that? Don't do it. Like she intentionally watches the tape, even though she knows like there's there's a history behind it where. Uh, people who watch it are dying, um, so they're they're making decisions that the audience wouldn't make. But there's there's kind of like a point. You mean you mean like also allowing your kid to watch it? Too? Like allow like like keeping it in the house and she didn't allow and, it. He found the movie. I mean, she was. If you kept it in the house, didn't you kind of allow it? It's like leaving this loaded gun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was about to say that. It's like leaving a loaded revolver on the kitchen table. Mm. Like, are you shocked the kid found it and used it? But the um, there, there there's kind of like a, a thing. It's a remake of a of a Japanese horror movie, and there's a different sort of of a contract that a viewing audience in Japan has with films that you know as as uh, audiences in in the the United States who's very used to like a Hollywood model of filmmaking. Um, we're, we're not we're always looking for like the the logical story beats and characterization whereas in 
other uh, other film audiences, particularly like Japanese and other Asian film audiences, they're okay with just accepting a sort of ambience. Like they can accept and watch a movie that's just about the atmosphere of it, rather than everything making perfect logical sense. So, it it is very much a remake of this Japanese film. So you kind of have to accept, like, if you're aware that information, you kind of have to accept going in. Like, this this isn't going to be the most like A to B thing that you're going to see out of other uh, very like story centric horror films. Oh yeah, uh, so just to pick up on that, um, I think I might be a little more positive on this film. Uh, I do think what it is genuinely bone chilling at times. Um, you know, it definitely does have some narrative issues, certainly, but I think as a horror film, this works fantastically well. Um, I think that it's even funny that they kind of start with a little vignette of like how the first girl dies, and it feels like you're watching a scream film. It's almost self-referential in that way. It's sort of setting you up for an expectation and then diverging completely from it. Um, and yeah, those that like the little snippet where you see of what this ring video has done to the people that succumb to it is just grisly. It is just terrifying. Um, I think that that, uh, that actual ring footage itself you watch, it watch is so cut together with just some of the most like jarringly weird stuff. You know? Um, and it's a lot of it is also kind of going to weave into what happens to the... It, it makes you think that the thing that they're watching is not the same. Like, two people can watch the film, and they may see some similar things here and there, but you will see something specific to the thing that horrifies you the most. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's an actual meaningful drama in it, too. When you get it, get away from the whole, like, spooky tape that kills you in seven days, you actually have a interesting drama about a couple that has a kid, and they're dealing with the single-parent thing. Uh, you know, I, I think that it works well for them involved and it does help that you've got you know Naomi Watts Naomi Watts is a fantastic actress also around the other cast like Brian Cox he's really good in it the baby daddy and it is Martin Henderson and I, I think he does a very good job in this this film and again I'll say it Devaney Chase is is so fucking creepy in this considering that again this is like her year because she was in Lilo and Stitch earlier this year as Le the voice of Lilo um, it's kind of wild to see that she's capable of this um, I yeah, think it's I really didn't, I didn't mean okay. to, to sound negative on it uh, I, I think it was a pretty good movie tale oh, okay, okay yeah. yeah and um, I think it's very well shot very well framed mm. I think that I often don't like when they kind of color scale in mass and they do color scale in this a bit and it's that kind of blue tone for that is indicative of like the Pacific Northwest there's a very like rust in like, like, like rusted lived in quality of of all of the environments in it, um, just packed with great scares. Just a really fucking scary movie, and so creepy. Um, and I, I think like the uh, the sort of uh, uh, color tinting choices that that they went with are pretty appropriate for the movie because usually the sort of like bluish tint uh, when you see it in uh, in a film, it's supposed to convey something uh, unnatural. It's supposed to give you that uneasy feeling because it's not like a, a, a natural form of light that we're used to seeing. Um, and it, it's also uh, 
like like a, a monitors, television screens, computer monitors. The light that's coming out of there is very blue, which is appropriate because you know they're they're being haunted by a killer videotape. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and then there's the revelation, like because because this the same director that made the original Ring also made Dark Water, and Dark Water is very much a film where there is not like the it's tragic circumstances. Um, it's not like the ghost is really a bad person, and this one. The ghost straight up is a bad person. They kind of insinuate that it's the spawn of the devil, that it was born, like the child was born from a barren womb, and that, like, all of this horrible stuff was happening in this small, like, island northwest community because of this girl, and they just wanted to kill the girl to stop the horrible stuff from happening. Um, you know, and then from from then on. That's I guess that's the I think that's how it's supposed to be. Like they kept the girl in that weird place in the barn loft where she couldn't get down and all they gave her was like a TV. So her, you know, devil insanity imprinted on the VHS tape and that's how it became this sort of disease that passes around. I mean, I don't know, that's that's I guess how the film explains it. It doesn't explain why uh, you know, yeah, Naomi I, I Watts is such a shitty it. mom. <laughs> I don't think they explained it very well. I was completely lost in this movie. <laughs> yeah, um, and I do love Brian Cox in it. I think that he's great. You do see kind of um, his quiet rage and why he, as the father of this forsaken girl who brought on so much trauma to all these people and how he's managed to go this whole time avoiding watching the tape. Good for him, you know? Uh, do, do you guys remember the exact contents of the tape? Anything particular stick out as being like, that was a nasty insert? Oh, uh, the bug. Like, bugs mm-hmm. are just kind of generally creepy. Yeah, the the maggot mm-hmm. um, mass. Oh, yeah, the, but yeah it, that's that's gross. That then cuts into the pile of writhing human bodies. Mm. That was nasty. The uh, Oh, my God, the finger being stabbed through the nail. Oh, yeah, that's, ah. that's gruesome. Man. Yeah, that, that's like skin-crawling stuff. Uh, the horse being thrown through the propeller in the ship, which was something that hadn't happened yet when Naomi Watts was watching it. <laughs> so, again, I think that the tape, whatever it's showing the individual, is prophetic and not just a whole series of stock images that are designed to freak you out. Yeah, just, ugh. Man, this movie. Oh, and yeah, the deaths are just, like, they don't need to do Saw-style murders. This movie is just gross mm. with what you see in the aftermath of these poor people. Uh, jump scares galore, too. Like, really just fucking amazing jump scares throughout. I think, you know, like, Gore Verbinski really did it here. He really fucking did it. Considering this guy is basically going to go on to make, like, the fucking Pirates movies and all this other stuff, he'll direct, like, probably fucking $3 billion worth of box office gross over his career for a guy that remains relatively low-key. Like, nobody's like, Gore Verbinski's amazing, but... Like he's he's uh he's money in the box office man. Prior to this, he had made fucking Mouse Hunt. Like I love Mouse Hunt. It's a comedy. Like he did The Mexican, that movie with like Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt, and then he makes this. Like out of fucking nowhere, I he like makes The Mexican. It wasn't a good movie, but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> but it would you have pre- <laughs> would you have predicted that <laughs> this would be his follow up to The Mexican? <laughs> to The Mexican? Oh God. So, I, I mean, I'm big on this movie. I, I liked it back when I saw it, and I, I was one of those people that was generally creeped out by it and probably lost sleep the night I saw it. And it doesn't 
scare me in that way anymore. I think I'm a little too desensitized to horror to really be, you know, like to have one make make me like pull the sheets up at night. But it's good. Like it's it's just a great great movie. I really liked this one a lot. All right, let's do box office. Okay. What do you think? Well, what do you You're think up, budget? Uh, I will do a budget of thirty million through zero. Okay. I'll do twenty. Forty-eight. This is actually oh, a pretty pricey damn. movie, especially for horror. It's a pretty pricey movie. Yeah. Uh, box office. Ooh, big big money. I think this uh, this movie probably did pretty well. I will say uh, an even hundred million for this one too. I'm gonna go seventy-five. Ooh, way overachieved. Two fifty. Oof. This this wow. was again. This was a heat seeker for October. Wow. This was like the three highest. I believe the three highest grossing movies were all horror films, and you know. This is this is it. Are we counting Bone um, for Columbine as a horror film? I think. Well, let's talk about two real quick, and then we'll get to the one that you're you're probably thinking of here. Uh, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, I'm coughing. Um, oh, but uh, so Jet Li released Hero in China. So I say we pencil. We're sorry, we push this one down to 2004 when it came out. It was actually a huge movie. Yeah. Um, also, Frida came out about the artist Frida Kahlo. Um, I didn't watch it. I've never watched it. I just, I don't know. I, I had just not felt compelled to watch it. Same. Um, and then we get to the third horror film of the month, Ghost Ship. Oh, there it is. Directed by Steve <laughs> Beck, who also... You're excited uh, about this one, aren't you, John? <laughs> who had also done 13 Ghosts. Another bad horror movie. Yes, another bad horror movie. Uh, Ghost Ship is so deeply silly. Like... Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh... Um, uh, pirates, salvagers, and they are led to this ghost ship. It's a, a ship where you see at the very beginning people are, are very gruesomely killed on this ship. And like, oh, well, there's got to be something on there worth salvaging. So they're led to it by a, a seemingly beneficial stranger uh, who just wants in on the action. And they get to the ship, and it is, of course, uh, uh, they discover the gruesome things that have happened on it. There's a, a, a kind of girl who's haunting it played by emily browning um and they through, through through the events of the movie they're like okay there is there anything on this ship we're salvaging is the ship itself going to be worth anything they just find gold there's fucking gold on the ship like okay well let's get the gold and get out of here um but you know the uh and i don't know i, I guess look, it, it doesn't matter if we're giving stuff away or not but like the um the overarching premise turns out that the benefactor who leads them to the ship is actually a, a spiritual entity that haunts the ship and is just looking to bring more victims onto it. Uh, it's a very well. It doesn't just haunt the ship. Apparently, haunts the entire right. Earth. <laughs> right. The, he can just go anywhere. His spirit isn't tied to the ship. He's just like going out looking for people to bring to the ship. Which says something about why, if he has this capacity, he chose these morons. Right. These were the clowns that he chose to... This is this is an event that occurred like 80 years ago or whatever. And he's like, this is my crew to strike with. These people are fucking morons. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they like become the crew. Like, at, at the very end, the, the, the gold is being hauled back onto the ship. And it's the, the people that he's murdered. Like, their spirits are then also attached to the ship and 
I don't, I don't know. Like they, it's a, it's a very tortured premise, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But they're trying really hard to have this moment where, like, oh shit, the ghost ship is gonna be out there to get more people. Um, and it, it, it's it's a, it's a very silly movie. It's very dumb. It really is. Yeah. Um, you you don't even really get very many gruesome kills you get like the one at the beginning you have a couple of moments where emily browning is like gonna jump scare you uh and then it's like a it's like a crew of five five or six and you know one that dies in an explosion and one is thrown down an elevator shaft or some shit like on the boat or whatever it's uh a couple of like get stabbed or like kill each other or something you don't um yeah, there's an off-screen death, and someone gets, you know, like... Again, another another scenario where someone's killed by a propeller blade, just on a horse oh, this yeah. time. It's uh, it's one of the crew member who, again, just gets a little... Big old thing of blood. Just comes out of the water. Is it Carl so, Urban? Yes, it is, in fact, Carl Urban. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, you know, you mentioned Emily Browning. She's great. Um, yeah. the whole the whole The rest of the cast is largely made up of people who were in medical dramas in the mid 2000s mm, mm-hmm. it is it is very much a cast of b-list actors kind of aside carl urban you know he's not a b-list actor you know he's s tier yeah yeah he was in, he'll be in the lord of the rings man he's for real um at this point he was in lord of the rings so yeah. he's got he's got that feather in at his the cap. end of the year yeah i mean what do i i think this movie for like it peaked too early for starters um, and I, I wouldn't hard. It's weird to call that peaking, <laughs> but that opening sequence is literally the only memorable thing about yeah, this movie. Everyone gets cut in half by the the cable wire, which is again, it's just so like I I, I don't know. It's like Wiley e. Coyote shit. Mm. It's just so bizarre, and it takes you off guard. It really catches you off guard as it happens, um, and then you're like, where is this movie gonna go from here? And it just goes into a bunch of like. I don't know, kind of boring kills and yeah, stuff. And I, I wonder, with stupid like, characters. If if the people making the movie knew where the movie was going from there as well, it seems like they had this one moment, like, hey, people died on the ship, and then other people are going to come, and like the ghosts are going to haunt the ship, and they'll have to deal with that, and they're like trying to like work the plot from there, rather than having some sort of like a logical sequence of events, because. Um, uh, th- then they they start hitting you as the movie goes on. You get hit with some flashbacks about other things that were happening on the ship. Apparently, like, there was supposed to be like a heist on the ship, and the heist yep. went wrong, and people were double crossing each other, which was apropos of nothing to what happened at the beginning with the cave. That was just an accident. So th- there's and why and why are exactly only three people of the hundred dead actually able to manifest on the ship? You have the lounge singer. The girl, and then the mastermind behind the whole thing are the only three, and one of whom is so powerful that he can fucking leave the boat. Right? Why doesn't like the ghost girl leave the boat and just be like, "Hey, can someone please bring a priest out to the water?" Why can't Emily Browning (laughs) leave the boat? Right? I mean, it's stupid. We I I shouldn't dissect this plot. It's so on its face silly. It knows it's silly. Like you're saying, it's it's having it's it's having a fun time being just kind of like a campy schlocky horror film. Like something that would get produced in the fifties, just a little more ultraviolet. Mm. It, it it kind of uh, we were making the comparison earlier to uh, the Ring, whereas the Ring, I think, uh, I don't want to say it suffers from it because it's it's not trying to have a whole lot of plot. The, the Ring doesn't really have 
a lot of plot, whereas Ghost Ship has too much plot, and it, it just confuses itself throughout the entire thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, Two closing thoughts on it. Uh, one, I think this is actually interesting. This is a sign of intelligence in the filmmakers. Gabriel Byrne's character, who's like the main captain guy, he is dressed exactly like Humphrey Bogart from Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And Treasure of the Sierra Madre is a film in which um, a bunch of men kill themselves over greed, over gold. So he's dressed very much as one of the most iconic characters of you know the 40s when that film came out. So, like, no, knowingly thinking that this is going to be an age-old tale of, you know, greed corrupting and then leading to the deaths. Also, the other interesting thing is that the, you know, the singer in it, the one, the mm-hmm. lounge singer woman? Yeah. Her name is Francesca Rettandini. She's Italian. She was on the Concordia cruise line in 2012 when it crashed, which killed 30 people. Hmm. She was oh, literally gosh. on a boat that had a bunch of people die. And I was like, fuck. You know? You think she has something to do with it? Probably. I don't know, man. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe she put the rocks there. She put the rocks on the ground (laughs) to make it happen, you know? As I understand, that's what happened. They struck, like, shallow rocks or something, and then they flooded quickly, and the boat went under. Hmm. Yeah. It was a a big event when I... I remember reading up on it. I was like, oh, yeah, the Concordia. What was that? And I looked it up, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's, like, one of those, like huge cruise liners literally was like sideways in the water mm. sadly a bunch of people died there so yeah very very weird that of all of the things that she would have done it's that movie and then that real event occurred to her so wow you know yep uh but budget <laughs> oh god budget what do we say uh, i think the ring was oh wait you're you're up first wes yeah the ring was like 40 something I think it was like forty-five. I'll, 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 you know, let's do it. Forty-five. Let's put them back to back. Let's see. Okay. No, I think this movie cost more. I think this movie was up at seventy million. Seven zero. Seventy. Would you believe this came in at twenty? What? I would not Whoa. believe that. There's a lot of water effects in this movie. Yeah. There's a big oh. explosion and everything. Oh, I also didn't mention that there's like there's like a classical score to it, but then also a ton of new metal in it, and it cuts back mm. and forth between them. So even the soundtrack is kind of fucked on this. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! At any rate, sorry, that was one last note I had to get out there. Sorry, box office. I'll go hundred. If there's any justice, two dollars. Uh, I, yeah. I, you know what? Wes, I mean, it's I, spooky time. It's spooky time. I like that prediction, Wes. That's bold. I'm gonna be have a bold prediction, but I'm going the other way. This movie did not make its money back. Fifteen million, one five. Somewhere in the middle of those two numbers, it's it made sixty eight. Mm. So okay. it actually did did really really well. I'm surprised they didn't make a sequel. I mean, it's spooky time. They're like, hey, we saw Ring. We might as well see Ghost Ship too. More horror movies. Let's go. Here's this it's sequel: Ghost Blimp. Oh, oh, it's, it's the story. Of How the about that, bird. guys? It's, it's yes. non-flammable helium. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's a bunch there of documentaries. There's an Archer reference for you guys. <laughs> I am not up to date on my Archer, sadly. Uh. All right, uh, on to documentaries. We've actually got a couple of documentaries to talk about mm, here as well. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll start us off with Jackass the movie. You guys watch Jackass the movie? <laughs> I like that that's uh, classified <laughs> that's a doc- as, a, as a documentary. documentary. It, is, it is actually a documentary. I mean, Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's not it's nonfiction. <laughs> if, if, if we do want to get um, 
all film school. It is a non-fiction film. The things you are seeing are things that like uh, people are doing. They're not playing. They they are playing characters, but the characters are themselves. Whereas, like a doc- I mean, it's like stunts. You're watching them perform stunts. Right. Whereas, like a, a documentary would traditionally be considered, like what while still probably a non-fiction film, you are trying to to depict a series of events. So, Jackass is like a sketch documentary. Okay. Yeah, it's, it is labeled... It, 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 I'll, here's what Wikipedia says about it. Not that they're the harbingers of truth, but reality slapstick comedy film. Hmm. That, I think that hits all of the points. I put it in documentary for lack of a better term. <laughs> so I mean, what a- are we going to... Yeah, whatever. It's like, what are we going to call Borat when that comes out? You know, it's like uh, a, a prank film. Yeah, um, I don't know. So I, I, I watched it in preparation for this. Have, have you watched it recently, or just in general? What's your opinion? So it's um, based on like the, the MTV show. It was on an MTV or something, like a, a sketch yeah. comedy oh, yeah, show, yeah. and they decided to make it into mm-hmm. a movie where they take like a, a long episode and like they take turns coming up with ideas that are probably going to hurt each other. Um, and you know, it's, it's generally a good time because you know that generally they're probably going to be okay. Like not mentally, but physically they're probably going to be okay eventually. Right. Right. But I think the, um, the, the, uh, the, yeah. the danger and they, they do, they begin with like the disclaimer, don't do this shit. These people are morons. Don't do it. And the danger is like, Hey, people are going to repeat this. Yeah. Wes, what's your opinion? It's. It's stupid, but it still has some charm to it here and there. Like right now, I'm on YouTube just looking at one where he, they rent a car and then take it to the the car Demolition smashing. Derby. Yeah, the, the, yep. yeah. That's the opening. <laughs> and they that's trash the opening the bit. thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's just funny. It's just stupid, kind of. You know, back yeah. in the day, that's just what all the kids my age were like into. We're like, all right, we're gonna go start our own stunt website and crap and. Oh, we, we were at the, the the height of of opulence. Like we we had no idea what to do as a society anymore. So we just started like, what if we just destructed ourselves? <laughs> yeah, I hope you're prepared for my high end critique. I have some things to say about this. Um, oh, I I'm ready. <laughs> oh gosh, high end critique of this movie. All right. Uh, so I, I think I I think essentially this comes out of the history of like. You know, these are all skateboarders, essentially. So it comes out of the whole history of, like, those wipeout mixes on skate tapes where it's, like, people just crash into shit. You know, it was, like, all of the failed attempts where you'd see people getting, like, eaten concrete. Objectively yeah, hilarious. Yeah. And, yeah, people love those. It's like when people love the NFL big hits compilations that they don't make anymore. Um, but, yeah, essentially, this is, like, a carnival thing. This is, like, carnies. They're, like, it's, like, a vaudevillian troupe. So, uh, sort of intentionally... Uh, just wrecking themselves through hilarious sketches that they come up with, all of these interesting skits and ideas that they have. So yeah, yeah, basically just to do that, to just kind of make you laugh at just the stupidity. You know, like guy getting hit in the groin with a football kind of shit. You know, it's it's meant for the basest enjoyment, and in that it it stunningly achieves. Like, th- this is great. This is actually, I genuinely loved watching this. Uh... You know, and again, the cast is like Johnny Knoxville is the main guy, Steve O, uh, Bam Margera, Ryan Dunn, Chris Pontius, and there's a whole handful of them. And 
I just have to like say the names of the scenes and they're fucking hilarious. Like the female kickboxer scene where Ryan Dunn gets his shit kicked in. <laughs> Butterbean boxing Johnny Knoxville in a department store. Um, off-roading tattoo is gruesome because he's like, they're. I think it's the oh. fucking singer for Black Flag is driving them around in a Humvee over a bunch of hills and they're trying to tattoo him. Ugh, <laughs> nasty. Um, snorting wasabi. Uh, they're old man pranksters where they get put in the old people makeup and just start fighting in public and shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the panda suits in Japan where they put on panda outfits. Uh, the demolition derby you mentioned. The yeah. toy car up the butt to go get an x-ray. <laughs> Golf cart racing. Alligator feeding from their asses. Um, <laughs> Bam Margera terrorizing his family. Like, well, he is so terrible to his family. <laughs> he really is. Well, I mean, hey, they, 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 they bought him a second story on their house with this shit, so... What are they to complain? Um, yeah, and I, I, God, there's just so many delightful moments in it. Like there, the Butterbean fight. You know who Butterbean is, by any chance? No. He's a very overweight professional boxer. He was just a big round guy. Okay. He looked like the big fat guy from um, Mike Tyson Punch Out. Um, oh, King that Hippo. You fight. Yeah, he looks like he looks a lot like King Hippo. Um, and like they go into a department store and they bring it in with a title card and everything and they announce them and then they touch gloves and start boxing and Butterbean is just told to fucking box like just do your thing and he just destroys Johnny Knoxville absolutely kicks his teeth in like it's hilarious and then like Johnny Knoxville is deeply concussed from the fight and the first thing he says like when he's coming to and this is always hilarious he's like how's Butterbean <laughs> <laughs> as if he did anything <laughs> Butterbean's fine it, it made it made me laugh barely so much yeah you know and I, and I think that that's what those boils down to it, it rightly has a fairly does exactly a 50% on Rotten Tomato because it is half unwatchable and half just in a way distilled pure comedy it is so, so funny in spite of it just being so gross at times. And it appeals to this truly base element in all of us that wants to see this kind of stuff. It is, it is schlock. It is, it is knowingly... It's, it's, yeah, it's slapstick yeah. schlock. But it's great. And, and they do it so well. And, and you can tell that it comes from a place of love, like that these guys love each other and they love doing this, so it works for them. Like They're, they're brothers in this insane thing that they do. So... I really enjoy it. Also, the soundtrack rips. A lot of really good music on it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually um, Spike Jones uh, filmed a lot of it, too, and staged some of the production. So, um, it actually, there is kind of a quality to it. It's not just them going around with camcorders and shit. Although, that is partly what it is. Long story short, that was great. That was really, really good. Movie of the month. Possibly. Uh, do you want me to just tell you the, the, the budget and box office? I, I don't think there's a way to like guess this. <laughs> oh, God, no, we're, so we're going to. We're going to guess. I mean, they, did, they did buy a car, so... Budget. They rented a car. <laughs> they did rent that car. Budget. I'm going low. I'm going 10 million. Go lower. I dare you. Uh, I'll, I'll say 15. <laughs> you should have. It's five. <laughs> what do you think it made? Oh, this is like over a hundred. I think. Uh, I mean, this is stupid. Again, Wes, I'm I'm going big here. Three hundred million dollars. Go higher, I dare you. Two fifty. Two fifty. You guys are way over us. Eighty. That's uh, so disappointing. I mean, it's I thought this wasn't big. Best, best return, return on investment. investment there. Yeah, like, crazy return on investment. So yeah, I, I would I would recommend that one for sure. Again, it is just so 
so absurd. Mm. Um, next one is a documentary called Hell House. Have you guys ever heard of this? Yes. From okay. You. Have you watched? Have you watched? Oh, you heard about it from me? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't get um, to watch it. <laughs> you know what's funny is um, there's a there's a podcast I listen to called QAnon Anonymous. It's they don't they don't follow QAnon, but they just kind of are interested in the cult. Um, and they do bonus episodes. And one of the bonus episodes that came up that I listened to recently was about hell houses, which is just like a thing that happens in America. Um, and they specifically talk about this documentary in it. So it was really great hearing their opinion on it as people who know, know what cults look like and are, are interested in following them. Um, what hell houses are, are an evangelical trend of making Halloween like haunted houses but rather than depicting, you know, ghouls and goblins and jump scares and all that stuff, what they want to do is show you why a non-Christian lifestyle will lead you to damnation, will lead you to hell. Um, and they do so in some of the most, um, like, triggering kind of ways. Um, like, I know we don't, we don't talk about, like, trigger warnings on anything on this, but there is a lot of really heavy content that they use to essentially scare straight people into Christianity in these haunted houses that they build. And it specifically follows one in Texas that is one of the biggest. And I think they said that, and you know, they're filming this in 2001, and that I think and they had said in the prior year, in 2000, they had over 80,000 visitors come, which is an insane amount of reach. Okay, for... so this came out in 2002, because IMDb yeah. has it listed 2001. Uh, it, it may be that maybe when it was like going through festivals and stuff. Uh, the mm -hmm. the I I used the numbers and the numbers listed it as a October, two thousand two film. Yeah, that's probably when it got a wide release. Yeah. Um, and so specifically, like, what what are you seeing? And I, I kid you not, these, this this is literally what you see if you go through their haunted house. You would see um, a scene involving someone engaging in. Uh, beating his wife and then driving drunk and dying. Um, you would see drug use, and then you don't—they don't actually show her being sexually assaulted, but she is apparently uh, raped by multiple people because she used drugs at a dance club. You see a Columbine-style suicide where a kid stands up in class and shoots himself. A gay man dying of AIDS. A woman dying from a botched abortion. Um, all of these are shown to you back to back. And then at the end of it, they lead you into a room where someone says, uh, basically like, do you want to pray with us? Or do you want to walk out the door knowing you face damnation? Right? Like it is absurd and manipulative, wrong in so many ways, and just so incredibly abusive to the people that do it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of it is just sort of like, in the same way that we talk about like jackasses, you kind of want to see the comedy of it all. There are people who want to see the most gruesome stuff they can in a haunted house, and this is like real stuff. You know, this isn't a zombie. You're talking about the horrifying events that occur to real people, real tragedies uh, that this group is exploiting. And I think in this documentary, they do a. And mind you, keep in mind this documentary is not like an expose at all. They're not like showing you these like what horrible people they are. Look at what they're doing. It's filmed very slice of life. You don't hear the doc as I recall, you don't hear the documentary, the people recording it say anything. They never ask a question or anything like that. You never hear them like leading anybody into any observation. 
they're just sort of showing you it. And it shows you a day in the life of these people that work for this church and why they do this. Um, and yeah, they're, they're, they're evangelicals. They, you know, they're, they're very much like, um, they, they speak in tongues, you know, they're, you know, new earth Adventists and all that. Like they, they have all of the kind of, um, uh, more evangelical leanings in their beliefs. And they really do think that in doing this, they're going to show people like the light of God and that they will, you know, get them to come to Christianity when it's like every single one of these things that they show you is so problematic. Like, like you're telling me Christians don't beat their wives and Christians don't drive drunk. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Like a woman can't go to a dance club and like not get raped. Like why is it her fault that that happened? Cause she went to a dance club. Like maybe, maybe the problem is with the Christians that raped her, you know, uh, the Columbine shooting, trying to blame the Columbine shooting on this. Like everything, everything is so awful. It is just so uncomfortable. Um, and you know, like there's, there's all of these different moments in it. And again, I, I don't think they ever, you know, they, they're never trying to say these are bad people for doing this. Again, it's very much you decide you watch and you decide. I, I think there probably are some evangelicals out there who would watch this and say, good, good that they're scaring these people straight good that they get to know that if they don't accept you know christ as their savior they're going to burn in hell for eternity but they're showing them all of these scenarios that really seem to have nothing at all to do with faith and have everything to do with just like the real life that we all live in um so deeply i think i've said the word manipulative like five times i'll say it again it's really really manipulative and i think it's as a christian i think it's very uncomfortable um and pushes people further away from christianity than encourages them to embrace it. Ugh, like it's it is gross. It is so gross. Yeah, you don't get people to like be better people by scaring them into it. All all you really do is end up like uh uh guilt tripping or scaring someone into uh um a, a, a sort of like a, a facsimile of a conversion moment for an evening and then they just go back to living their life the way it was before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the moments that really got me is that there was a woman in the audience. Like they show the audiences, and mind you, there's no age restrictions. Like there's eight year olds in there watching this. There's young kids watching this, um, and these are all done to be as realistic as possible. And it's like there was a woman that fainted in one of them, who in her life had suffered multiple miscarriages, who had to had to sit there and watch that abortion scene. Mm. You know, and it's like. Just imagine that, like, you know, and she believed herself to be a good Christian woman, I'm sure. Does, does that mean that every one of the f failed, you know, like, pregnancies that she had was, was in some way because she, she wasn't in tuned enough with the Christian faith? Like, it's, ugh, it, it's, it's, this is like a kind of a movie you watch and then you need a shower afterwards. It's really troubling. And yeah, what, what, uh, it's an interesting, uh, subject for a documentary because it's one of those things that you know um you, people in their their everyday life like especially around october might encounter this sort of thing just like in their local community like oh there's a church over there and they're putting up some sort of haunted house but not really have an idea what it is or really take a second to think about what it is that they're doing so mm -hmm. it, uh you don't really think of like, oh, somebody should 
make a documentary about that so that everyone so more people can be aware of what's happening it's it's a really interesting choice to, to say like hey let's let's actually let's let's get a camera let's go talk to some people and find out what it is that they're they're doing here yeah and i think they actually it starts with you can tell off off camera the prompt to them was what do you think hell is describe hell and then they show all of the different main principal people in it some teenagers some parents and nobody has the same answer. Nobody can even define hell. I mean, they have their definition of hell. Hell is what that means to them. But this thing that they're doing, all of this horrible stuff, is to basically say, you don't go to this place that I'm imagining for myself. You know, it's, 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 it's just deeply troubling. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like faith is very much what we define for ourselves. And I really don't think it should be you defining it for others. I, I, I just... Uh, and, and yeah, I, again, I actually do recommend people watch this movie just to kind of get... Oh, and apparently, so um, 2021, they reopened post-COVID, and it was the last year that they did it. So they had mm. been doing this thing since 2002. They never stopped doing it, only upping the production value for all of this stuff. Um, and only recently did they actually finally close it down. And there's still more of them. It's not like this is the only one. There's there's dozens of them all over the United States that that do essentially the same thing. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's it's just a weird weird thing, um, a weird bit of real history that I don't know. It uh, again, it, it's a makes for an incredible documentary to to you know show real life. So I, again, I know tough stuff to talk about. I really liked it. I, I would recommend it. Um, there might be even one more difficult documentary to talk about, and that's Bowling for Columbine. Mm. That also came out this month. Um, mm. Probably one of the few recognize, recognizable documentaries. I think if you sat someone down and told them to just name some documentaries, Bowling for Columbine would probably make the short list. Yeah, for sure. Probably uh, one of Michael Moore's, probably one of the more famous documentarians in... in this country probably one of his more famous ones but this in like fahrenheit 9-11 will probably be the one in one a for his most famous and this is the one uh, directly after well not directly after but uh roger and me was his first one this is the next one up on his filmography i think yeah yeah that's right and uh there's a bit of crossover in, in, in what roger and me was about because it was about um uh vehicle production leaving michigan and moving to mexico like kind of outsourcing jobs those are the, the, the um, economic it, devastation that it's left in his wake. And it was a profoundly good documentary. Mm -hmm. And in this one, he basically takes a much bigger bite and wants to expand his scope to all kinds of different things. Um, specifically, he talks about gun culture, um, America's race relations, uh, shootings, the alt-right. Um, he talks about... Uh, yeah, um, just the media in general. Um, gun sales and, and yeah, gun, uh, gun, uh, retail outlets that sell guns and ammunition. Yeah. Oh, and and, and you know he and he frames it because he's he is an NRA member. Like he's like I have an NRA card. Like when I was he talk, he shows his medals. He had a bunch of medals from when he was a teenager. He was like an expert shooter. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he's just phobic about guns. He sees a genuine problem in this nation with guns. And I, I just want to bring up, like, we literally just this past weekend had a mass shooting. We had a mass shooting where the body count was bigger than the DC sniper. Like, the DC sniper was the biggest story of 2002, 
And the shooting in Maine is like the third biggest news story after, you know, the war in Israel and the election of a new House Speaker. Like, e everything he says is wrong is only amplified today. It's so much, so these problems have become so much more profound and so much bigger. Um, so when he talks about, and, and, and uses Canada as an example, he uses Canada as a comparison to say, like, Canada has more guns, they... Are, they have more poverty. Um, you know, they have all of the metrics that would indicate that they should be the violent ones. Um, and we should not be the violent ones. It flat, falls flat, flat on its face. They're, they're much better about it up there. And I think that he attributes it to a lot of different things. He doesn't say, this is specifically why it's happening, and here's our solution to this problem. I think he pinpoints a lot of issues and says there's a lot we need to do about this. Yeah, I think that one of the the more interesting things about the documentary is that he doesn't leave with answers, and he he's got like a very uh, narrative style to his documentaries. Like he he narrates uh, most of the things that happen. He like tells like where he's going and why he's doing it, and has like these inner little interstitial things with like there's an animated sequence and where he's like, like very much a storytelling documentary. And mm -hmm. you kind of expect where he's going with it. Like, okay, well, he's going to uh, eventually propose a solution. Like, this is the problem. This is what we need to do about it. But there's never that call to action. Because um, it's not a problem with a, with an easy solution. As he, like, he points out uh, over and over again in the documentary, like, hey, this is a problem here. But they also have the exact or similar conditions in other places. And it's it's difficult for him and difficult for everyone to pinpoint like what is different about this country where we have this problem this is a uniquely american problem and why is it that these other countries have similar setups uh similar conditions but don't have problems with children going into their schools and shooting their classmates Right, right. And and I think that at the very end of it, when he takes those two survivors from the Columbine shooting to, is it Kmart? Is that the story he goes to? Yeah. Uh, it goes to their corporate headquarters and he, they go to a Kmart beforehand and buy out every bullet they can and then bring them there and sort of ask them to return the bullets, you know, to refund them for them. And then to ask them to just stop selling ammunition there. And it and it works. Like I mean, I'm sure I'm sure behind the scenes, what we didn't see is Roger Moore call up every news connection he had, and be like, "I'm doing this. Bring some cameras." So that way, like, you know, they've got 50 reporters there with cameras, and then Kmart has to come out and make a statement, and they can't just look like dirtbags mm. when it was just, you know, when it was just Michael Moore and some kids. I guess like you know, that. That is like the 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 action that he he takes is like I can even use like the. Um, the bit from the Chris Rock stand-up in the documentary where Chris Rock is really like, oh, yeah. Wait, we need some more bullet control. Um, yeah. The bullets cost $5,000. Yeah. <laughs> no more innocent bystanders. And I think that's his point, Drew, is like, he's like, uh, what's the fucking slogan from uh, Death to Smoochie? He's like, you can't change the world, but you can make a dent. Mm. I think that that's what he thinks needs to happen, is a thousand little moments like that need to occur, that nobody can tell the media to stop portraying black people bad. You know, and nobody can say like, you know, we need to address the mental health crisis in America and not blame Marilyn Manson. And, you know, and they has that sit down interview with Marilyn Manson in there, and he comes off as very controlled and intelligent. And this is a guy that had to cancel his tour after the Columbine shooting, even though he had nothing to do with it. You know, it's it's 
turns out not to be such a great dude yeah. either. But yeah, again, also, but yeah, he's not not a great dude because he was telling people to kill themselves, right? You know, like he's he's not a great dude because he's treated women poorly. Yeah, there was also this examination in Bowling for Columbine about this this uh, uh, blaming culture, like always trying to find yeah. like what what are what are the reasons this happening? Like it's great that you're trying to be introspective and figure out what it is about us that. Uh, makes us different but in the meantime maybe if there were fewer bullets it would happen uh, less often to give us time to figure out what the issue is yeah yeah you know these these are you know mass killing tools it's like they you know it's true if they didn't have a gun they'd probably use a knife but they'd probably you know there'd probably be 20 less dead people in maine if the guy had a knife mm. you know you, you bring like, out you bring a knife into your school you know, you might wield it for a few minutes before someone's like, hey, let me pick up a chair and just kind of swing it at them. Or you can run away from a knife. Yeah, and, and sure, that's a that's a symptom, not a disease thing. It doesn't address whatever it is, the thing that compels them to pick up a knife and try to kill someone. Sure, like that that is also a problem, but, you know, there's, there's obviously deep-seated issues mm -hmm. in our nation. And again, Michael Morsi calls it all out. He really fucking spells it out. Uh, that these are all of the problems that are in America and we're really not doing much to make it any better. Yeah. And I, I think it was, a, he, he does a very good job of having a good flow to his documentaries. This one in particular, where he's like, one thing is going to lead you to the next. And he kind of like builds this narrative throughout the entire thing. Um, it, it makes it a really, you know, as, as difficult as the subject matter is really like, easy to watch it's easy to follow through yeah um and he uh like that there, there's a couple of little vignettes in it but there's that um what a wonderful world mm -hmm. sequence where it's all of these horrifying events captured and it's like police beatings and um like just raw footage raw footage of suicides and just like grisly stuff uh war put over one of yeah, put put over one of the most beautiful songs, and then it it ends with the planes hitting the towers, and mm -hmm. it's like, Christ, that is that is a you know that is designed to be as traumatic as possible, you know, and it's really off putting. And then and again, that, that those kind of moments that happen frequently in the, the, these this documentary really does stick out. So I mean, I don't, we've been going on forever. I, I I would just tell people to watch this. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's absolutely worth it. It's it tells us a lot about today. And uh, uh, one last documentary. We don't even have to talk about it, but Nikoya Quatsi. It's the it's a third film. It's essentially uh, it is a lot of like ambient music placed over nature footage, which sounds weird. But the whole point of it is that it's supposed to talk about um, pollution. Essentially, it's supposed to, supposed to talk about how. Uh, the 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 environments that animals are in compared to what mankind has done to them. Mm. So, I would also just put that in there as one last movie to consider. Well, you know, um, is it, is yeah, it just like wildlife footage set to music? Is that the entire thing? Um, it's a bit more experimental than that. There will be like a lot of weird color shifting and stuff like that. Like they would show. I'm trying to think of a good example. They would show side by side, like. Um, you know, something like a gazelle being chased by a cheetah put side by side with, you know, a bunch of people boarding on and off of public transit and mm -hmm. stuff like that. 
Um, you know, it's it kind of it doesn't necessarily have a direct message that you're going to watch, and it's going to all make sense. Um, but really, I think it is supposed to talk about how you know an- animals are expected to be in a certain environment, and how we humans don't think of ourselves as animals, but we are animals, and we're in a lot of ways destroying the world for all of the other animals like us. It's, it's interesting because like the sort of the, the inverse of what Michael Moore is doing, where he's going to like lead you somewhere very directly, but. I, not to get all film school and everyone again, but th- there are oh, uh, uh, people who would argue that the only pure form of documentary is actually just like putting the camera down and letting it record and doing nothing to try to interact or change the environment. And of course, the counter argument is like you can't observe something without changing it. But like the, the documentary purists would say, like, no, you shouldn't be narrating. You shouldn't even be moving the camera. You just have to sit, sit it down, and then take the footage and make it something viewable and that's all you can do in order to actually have a pure documentary otherwise you're making a narrative film how is that degree working out for you john oh it's great great. i get to talk to you guys about movies every month yeah well and here's the thing everything is self-selected too like it's what you cut and what you don't cut from a film Mm -hmm. that you know tells the narrative you know so like even when i was talking about hell house and i was saying how hands-off the directors are They've got lots of footage. They could they could have easily cut this thing together where you didn't see the horrors of it, and you, all you saw was this really like kumbaya stuff from a from a Christian group trying to help people. Um, and yeah, and and Bowling for Columbine, Michael Moore is is very clearly biased and wants to lead you to a conclusion that he's already established. Like he knows where he wants to take you with this. And then by comparison, like Nikoya Quatsi the fact that they choose to show the sequences next to each other. They're not saying this is exactly like this, but they're saying this informs this in some way. Yeah, by juxtaposing that, those images, you are uh, mm-hmm. uh, at least presenting like the the viewer with, these are things you should compare. And you know you can't get inside their head. You can't like know how the viewer is going to compare those two things. But you can have an idea. Like, I want these two things compared to each other. Draw your own conclusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think that wraps it up. Unless you've got... Did I miss any movies? Do you have any movies? No. No, I think that's it. Uh, Movie of the month? Is it Jackass or The Ring? I would give it to The Ring. I would too. Yeah. Genuinely good horror film. Wes, do you concur? I concur. Cool. All right, this is a mammoth one. We've gone on for probably four hours combined over two podcasts about October of 2002. And I'm going to tell you, holy shit, November is going to be just as wild. Oh, seriously? For for video (laughs) games especially. And I think, like, we might have, like, one or two fewer movies, but, like, the video game lineup is once again just bonkers. Stacked. Hey, holiday season's approach. Yep. Yep. Um... But yeah, that that's 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 enough of this retro show. We're done here. End of podcast. So long. Yeah, later, Gator.